beauty and skincare is always a hot topic around here, and today I want to tell you about a new product line I've discovered that I think you will like, Exponent Beauty. Listeners of the show will receive 20% off their purchase. More details on that in a minute. Exponent Beauty is a skincare brand with a line of activated anti-aging serums that are clinically proven to reduce fine lines and wrinkles. The beauty of Exponent Beauty is their innovative form factor. The powders are activated with a quadruple hyaluronic acid serum in their patented precision-dosed dispenser. The packaging is gorgeous, and the dispenser itself is refillable, so it has also reduced plastic waste. Exponent Beauty's line of serums can be found in med spas and spas and dermatologists' office around the country. The line is dermatologist-recommended and clinically proven to reduce those fine lines and wrinkles, and to increase brightness and radiance, and to firm skin without irritation. No more expired or underutilized products with Exponent Beauty, just high-quality skincare with ingredients that work. Go to ExponentBeauty.com and use code TELL20 for 20% off a purchase of $100 or more. That's Exponent, E-X-P-O-N-E-N-T, Beauty, B-E-A-U-T-Y.com and use code TELL20, T-E-L-L, the numbers two zero for 20% off your purchase of $100 or more. I'm Laura Tremaine, and I have 10 things to tell you, and you have 10 things to tell. This show is about connection with each other and with ourselves, and the hope is that the things we talk about here will be fuel for better conversations and a personal awareness. Each episode has a prompt or a topic that I want you to take to your journal, text to a friend, or share on social media using the hashtag 10 things to tell you. This is a show about digging deeper and sharing our stuff. I'll go first. Hi, book club friends. Hi. Hi. This is the fifth year that we have gathered at the end of the year to record a best books of the year episode. And I'm kind of mind boggled by that stat. Five years? Yeah. It's it's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. I think because, you know, we had a couple of years of pandemic in there. We had to do it on Zoom one time. But I don't know, five years of sitting down and like coming together to talk about our favorite books of the year, which we do for an episode, but we're also doing as a book club and as friends it's sort of momentous. Like, I kind of encourage everybody to do this. I like it. I think it's a really good opportunity for us to not just think about the years we've had as readers, but just as people and how we've changed. And, you know, and even looking back at, like, what our favorite books were five years ago, like, we're just different. And I think that's, I think it's really good. It's a really nice demarcation of time. I agree. And, you know, the end of the year brings all these lists out, right? Like everybody makes lists. Like there's like BuzzFeed lists and Slate and, you know, all of these big web publications or whoever makes these lists. And I have really tried to think about and encourage that everybody could be making these lists. You don't have to be like publicly doing it. You could do it in your own private book clubs or in your own journals or whatever. And it really is a nice way to wind down the year or like reflect on the year 
and not just leave it up to you know, the New York Times to make a list, but like making our own list. So I'm yeah. glad that we do it because you're right. We have it documented now for five years what our favorite books were that year. It's like really fascinating. It is. It's also, it's a fun tradition in that in prior years, I always, like we always joke about how we suffer from liking the books we read the most recently, the most for the first time ever in anticipation of this episode, I wrote my favorite books as I went along, which I have never done before. You mean you haven't usually kept a record of what you were reading or you weren't just keeping like a favorites list? Both. For a long time, I never kept records of what I did. And then only because of this book club, because you both keep records of what you read. I started doing it like two years ago, but this was the first year I have a list of all the books I've read. And I have a second list that I started the same day, which was all my favorites of the year. So I I actually started marking my favorites as I went through. You guys, we're changing the world. (laughs) Basically, right? Is this what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Absolutely. This is God's work we're doing. (laughs) Okay, so even though we've been doing this for a full five years, and we have a lot of listeners that genuinely feel like they've gotten to know both of you over the years, just by this episode alone, actually. But we also have new listeners. So let's introduce ourselves. Of course, I'm Laura Tremaine. This is my show, 10 Things to Tell You. And Steph, who are you? I'm Stephanie Newman-Smith. I'm a development executive in a small production company here in Los Angeles. I grew up in Santa Barbara, so I've been a Southern Californian girl my whole life. And in terms of what I read, I typically go for mostly literary fiction. I read a lot of mysteries, which I enjoy. I definitely love chiclet. Generally speaking, I don't read a ton of nonfiction, but what I do is almost entirely memoir. Mm, Good notes, good notes. (laughs) Yasmin, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Yasmin Dunn. I am a VP in diversity and inclusion at a legacy studio here in LA. And I work primarily in television. And I'm also a Southern California girl, LA born and raised. I am an avid reader. And, you know, I have to say that I think this this book club and this episode has really changed the way that I that I read and that I think about books. Because I'm always thinking like, oh, well, what is it that I want to share with people or what really resonated with me that I think everyone needs to know about? So I definitely have changed my reading habits through this. Is that a good thing, though? Because, I mean, as a like content producer, I think it's a great thing. But in a bigger picture way, I do think about this sometimes of if we're catering what we choose like to buy, like style or what we choose to read or whatever, because we want to be able to package it and tell people about it versus... I would say that that's not, that's not what I mean. What I mean is when I read, I think, how is this resonating with me? Like on a different sort of metacognitive level, as I'm reading, I'm thinking about reading, thinking about thinking, thinking about how I would explain this. So I still read whatever I'm going to read. I don't only buy things that I think I want to share, but I'm just approaching it in a different way. I think because I have a history as an educator, I have always sort of read for how I can teach and what themes are resonating with me in terms of what I'm teaching. And now it's shifted into like what is resonating with me as a reader and why. And I didn't really 
think about it that way before. You're like more mindfully reading versus just like autopilot. Yeah. And I'm not, and I guess the difference is I'm not reading to teach anymore. I'm reading to just experience as a reader and share with other readers, which is a new thing for me. I like that. I like reflection as you're reading, just thinking about like, am I actually enjoying this? Right. <laughs> you know, versus mm-hmm. like, sometimes you just, you can read very much on autopilot. You're just reading because somebody told you it's a good book and you never really investigate like, is this worth my time? Mm-hmm. Do I mm-hmm. like this? Or am I just reading this because it's a bestseller or whatever, like just examining our own tastes or enjoyment And I think this is actually why some people don't read is because they've been reading the wrong books. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, some people just like literally don't enjoy the act of reading, but some people I think only read bestsellers and maybe that's just not what they love or like they never learned a love of reading because when they were young school age, they were forced to read boring literature. And so they didn't even realize that there's like fun, juicy stuff out there to read. Mm -hmm. And so even if you're like regular readers, like all three of us are, it's, it's nice to do it like with a little more investigation, I feel like. Well, and I, I mean, I will say I firmly believe that if you don't like reading, it's because you haven't found the right book. There is a book for everyone that will make you enjoy reading and enjoy your relationship with the written word. And I, I believe that very, very strongly. So yeah, I think it's, I think... I think I go in phases, you know, and like last year's episode, I talked about how like with the pandemic, everything had gotten me down. So I was reading new things that I'd never read before. Like I went on my romance kick and I think it's just, I'm now able to read just for pleasure and not escapism. So like my Mm -hmm. choice of reading this year is really different because I'm less in like, I, I don't need to escape the world so much. I don't need to be like in fantasy or romance or these things that are so far away from my lived experience. I also think the value of a book club, like a private book club, not necessarily this being a public episode that we make, but our, our private book club that we've had for years, other book clubs that I've been a part of can change the way you mindfully read because you either read outside of a genre that you would never pick up yourself, or you're, you are thinking when you're reading a book club book, like how you're going to discuss it. Mm -hmm. And that sort of interesting way to pay more attention. This book club has definitely changed how I read because, and I want to explain this to listeners anyway, we are three very radically different people. (laughs) We have different tastes. We have different backgrounds. And, you know, that's not like always true in every friend group or, you know, whatever, a lot of us can sometimes get into a bubble of sameness. And so it has been really beneficial to me that our book club is that the three of us are so different. And also I say this every year, I'm going to say it again. We didn't plan for this to happen, but our book club is three people. And I really do think that sometimes people don't want to start a book club or they they feel like a book club is a really daunting thing because you have to have 25 people show up or whatever in order for it to be valuable. There's literally three of us Mm -hmm. and we have amazing discussions and learn a lot. And I really want people to hear that year after year that you don't have to like be putting together like a whole thing every single month to have a quality book club. Well, and I think the good thing too, is that like, 
you know, we were talking earlier before we were before we were recording about community and how you and I have kids and our community comes from schools and our kids' friends and their parents, but nothing really brings us together except mm-hmm. book club. The like, three of us. Yes, true. the three of us. Like that's how we met. I mean, granted, Steph and I work in the same industry and you're connected to that industry, but we weren't. We also work in very different sides of it. Yeah. And, and would not have naturally kind of crossed over had it not been for book club, which right. is delightful. We're different ages. Stephanie is a lot younger than Yasmin and I. Yasmin and I are mothers. Stephanie is not yet. We grew up different religions. Mm-hmm. We represent three different world religions here. We do oh my actually. Goodness. And like really like specific religions too. That's that's in the, yeah. you know with lots of rules. I grew up Christian. Stephanie grew up Jewish. Yasmin grew up Muslim. I mean that is a huge part of our history no matter what our life looks like now, that we bring to our reading and to our discussions, for sure. Absolutely. One of my favorite things of book club, which has always been kind of a funny thing that I enjoy, is I'll read a book that I really love, and I can't wait to find which one of you hates it. (laughs) It's one of my favorite, because we rarely all, frequently two of us love something, and the third hates it. But it's always my favorite to be like, I love this one. Can't wait to find out which one hates it. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) It's usually more. It's usually more. Very different taste, but not always. You guys, I... <laughs> it's funny because I really project positivity on my book club episodes, on my reading and book episodes throughout the year. And I do that purposefully. I don't want to talk negatively about books publicly as an author. I don't want to put that out into the world. Like I'm not out to hate on books or authors. It's like such a big thing to write a book at all. But people should know that privately, I'm not afraid to hate on a book. <laughs> I, just, I mean, I don't think any of us are, but that is very true. <laughs> well, no, but I think it's just testament to the the different tastes that we were talking about. Because there are sometimes, if you go back and listen, like there's regular themes that Stephanie and I sort of really gravitate, gravitate towards, towards. And then Laura will be like, what? What is this? <laughs> But then, you know, but you also always surprise me. Like your love for S.A. Crosby has all, is just like, it's, that was not something I would have expected from you. Why? Because he's so violent? There's, well, no, because you like Stephen King. I don't know. I just think like, I didn't think that you were going to like it. I don't know. Because it seemed thematically similar to other books that you've like viscerally hated. So maybe it's the violence, maybe it's the darkness, but I don't know. I, I was... Like, I was surprised that, not that you liked it, but that you liked him so much. Like, that was, like, your favorite book. Like, that was what I was like, oh. And every year you have a book where I'm like, oh. It's it's <laughs> also never the ones I think it's going to be that we all love. Like, the line that held us, the David Joy book, I didn't see that being the one all three of us loved, which we did. That's true. That's one of my favorite books of all time. It's an excellent book. Yeah. But it's it's funny. When I read that, I was like, I love this. I don't know what book club is going to say about this one. Let's talk briefly about what our year in reading has looked like. Just, you know, we always kind of just make a general vibe of what reading was like in 2020, what reading was like in 2021. Now, here we are in 2022. And Yasmin already mentioned that, like, she didn't feel quite the need to escape. But do you feel like your overall reading year was strong? Was it varied? I'll go first. My 
breeding air sucked so bad. Oh, no. <laughs> really? I feel like you said that last year, too. Oh, well, I probably did. <laughs> I haven't had a great couple of years in reading. I will say I feel like, not that I am overly versed in the publishing industry, and of course, I published a book in 2021. I do feel like 2022 was a stronger publishing year. There mm-hmm. were some amazing books that came out this year. I feel like if I had been on my game and in like a different mind space, this could have been, and for some people, I'm sure was a stellar reading year. I feel like I keep seeing books that seem so interesting and so strong and powerful. I didn't read many of those, but mm-hmm. I know that they came out. <laughs> And I can't even explain to you what was wrong with my reading year. I do feel like maybe I didn't make the best choices for myself mm. in what I was reading. And why because do you, I, I why had, do you think that happened though? I'm not sure because I had a better personal year in 2022, like my personal life than I had in 2021. Mm-hmm. So in 2021, if I did say that last year, which I think you're right. I think I did say that last year. I, I had a difficult 2021 personal year. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of gave my past to be like, yeah. And also my reading sucked. Mm -hmm. That's not the case in 2022. So, you know, I don't know if it comes down to the choices of what I was reading or if I just felt a little bit discombobulated in like how I was reading. I I don't have a set answer. I just feel like I kept looking around. It was like being at a party where everyone else was having a blast Mm -hmm. and you're like, why aren't I having fun? Mm -hmm. Because I can see that all the elements for fun are here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet I want to go home. That's what my reading life has been like. I keep looking around and being like, these books are amazing. What's happening that I'm not like feeling it. So yeah, I'm I that's, I don't have a set answer. What was your reading life? Like, Yasmin? It was good, actually. I think I I read a lot more fiction than I normally do. I'm normally like nonfiction, nonfiction. I will say I purchased a lot of nonfiction <laughs> that I did not read, but I read a lot more fiction and it felt good to, to do that. I think the first half of the year, I was really in my groove of fiction. And it's only in the past couple of months that I've actually started reading nonfiction again. But so it was, I think it was, I read less, I think, than I normally do. And normally I'm like upwards of like 75, 80 books a year. And I'm like drastically lower than that this year. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I started a new job. So there's been a lot of focus outside of just my time to read, you know, and I will say that my brain has been so occupied in this new job that I haven't even felt the space to read. Like when I get home, I just like my brain can't even do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I really noticed a difference on Thanksgiving break that I was like, oh my, I have like an empty brain and I'm not thinking about like, oh, this has to happen tomorrow. And yeah, this has to happen. And so I read like five books in a week because I just didn't have anything else to do. And it was so glorious. But I will say, I think that because my mind has been occupied in other ways, you know, like with my, my daughter's going to middle school. So there's been a lot of attention on like school research and that and then the new job like I just didn't have it in me to read as much as I normally do I read like a third of what I normally do quite frankly yeah I also didn't read as much as usual also I wrote a book this year and I do wonder if that mattered a little bit I have author friends who can't read when they're writing, like it's sort of, they're worried it affects their voice, their writing voice, or, you know, they don't want to be influenced in a certain way. Or so maybe if they're 
novel writers, they can only read nonfiction when they're writing or, or whatever so that it doesn't affect them or they don't read much at all when they're writing. That wasn't true with my first book. I feel like with my, gonna say. with my first book, I read at my normal pace. I didn't, I did not see any conflict there. And, but I do wonder if with writing the second book, which actually the second book was a totally different journey, writing journey that it wasn't that I was worried about my writing voice or anything. It was more about brain space. Does it take the same part of your kind of emotional brain power that you have to write and to read? Yeah, kind of. It's sort of just like when I had downtime, I wasn't reaching for a book in the Mm -hmm. same way. Yeah, sure. So that was probably part of it. Steph, what was your reading life? I don't know. I think that's just a humble brag. She's (laughs) like, I read a book, so I didn't read. (laughs) By the way. (laughs) I'm better than both of you. Correct. (laughs) I mean, my excuse was writing my book. (laughs) What is yours, Steph? (laughs) This was the year I got my groove back. Like the last, the last two years I feel like have been so rough. Freshman and junior is sophomore year of the pandemic were like not fun for reading. And I felt the same way I think that you guys felt, which is like last year, I wasn't sure if it was just like not a good publishing year for me, or I think what in retrospect was probably more likely was that I just wasn't in the right headspace. But this year was actually a really good reading year. Last year, it I was a little bit of a stretch, honestly, to find like my four favorites. So I was like, I don't know. I mean, I liked it, but like best of this year I was like oh I've got a bunch like I'll have to pick through I don't know what they are like let me think about it I've read a lot more than I did last year I and I think a lot of it was just like I was in a better headspace this year I had a really good year I finally traveled for the first time since the pandemic started like I got married last year and that was wonderful and so now I don't have to have any of that stress I started a new job last year which was really stressful And this year, I feel like I've kind of finally hit my groove. So this was actually like the first time in several years where I was like, no, I had a very solid, happy reading year. So it's good for me. (laughs) Okay. That's wonderful. Yeah. And maybe you can kick us off then with sharing our favorite books. So how we do this is we'll go around one at a time and share our top favorite books. So I know all four of us read a lot. It's hard to narrow it down to like our our top few we choose for this episode or to share with one another. The types of books that either we really want to recommend to people, like we really, really want to highlight this book for some reason, or sometimes we talk about bestsellers here that everyone wants to just hear discussed, that kind of thing. So, you know, just to be clear... These are the books that we want to share here, but we all have a long list of favorites. And in fact, listeners, I will publish my full favorites, like my full list of best fiction and best nonfiction, even those that I don't discuss here. I will put those online primarily in my secret posts, which you can sign up for by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret posts. That's an email, comes straight to your inbox. And that will have my full, full list. So today we're just going to hit some highlights. And Steph, since you had such a stellar reading year, why don't you kick us off with a book you want to share, the first book you want to share? The first book I want to share, which is going to be hilarious because it's one I know you didn't like, is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, 
which I really loved. Yasmin, did you read it as well? I did. I liked it too. I loved it. So it follows the story of two friends, Sadie Green and Sam Mazur, who meet as children in a hospital and bond over video games. They have kind of a friendship bust up and reconnect later in college when they end up coming together to build their own video game. And the book follows them over almost 30 years and kind of tracks the ebbs and flows of their relationship as it, you know, they become very close and then it becomes very strained. But I thought it was really beautiful. I loved the portrait of the relationships between the three main characters. It's Sadie and Sam and then Sam's college roommate who becomes one of very close with them, Marks. And I loved tracking the way that their relationships were so unique and kept constantly shifting between the three of them. And I thought it was really affecting. I also, I am not a person who likes video games. I don't know anything about video games, but I thought that the way that the author wrote about video games was really beautiful and the way she clearly thinks of them as art. And I thought that was really interesting and kind of a world I know absolutely nothing about. But Laura, you hated it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I didn't hate it. I, I really didn't hate it. Okay. I felt like it was trying to do way too much. Okay. So when we got to the end and I'm, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers because there's some pretty big things that happen in this book, but I was like, there is a lot being tackled. Yeah. She's talking a lot about what it is to be, you know, there's stuff about what it is to be ambitious and work and to be a woman in an all male dominated field. There's stuff about what it is to be biracial. There's stuff about, Sam has a lot of trauma, which kind of comes unspooling throughout the novel, which is all really, really intense. He also has a lifelong, from his teenage years, has this horrendous injury. So there's a lot of stuff about what it is to be disabled. She's she's throwing kind of all of it at the wall. I thought it was really moving, though, and, and effective. Because I also think, though, that that is just people, right? Yeah. Like... We don't get to pick and choose our identities. And if you think about it in terms of intersectionality, there are many people that are dealing with a a racial identity Mm -hmm. that's difficult, a disability, and being an underrepresented person. Like, I think that, like, we can't just say, oh, it's a lot, because people are a Mm -hmm. lot, right? And I think that it did a good job of being able to tackle intersectional identities in an interesting way. Yeah. But it's funny because I feel, I feel like your reaction reminds me of a little life that you hated so much because of all the things that kept happening to Jude and you were just like, I mean, I hated that too. That felt like trauma. But I feel like it's, it's, it's a, that was a little bit of it too. It was just like, Oh my God, it's all the things. Yeah. But I mean, and granted this is not as extreme as that, but I, I, I think that, there are plenty of people that deal with these overlapping traumas and issues moving through the world. Yeah. Right. I don't think that real life is like a single narrative. (laughs) I really wish that you guys could see the way that Laura looks at me when we have these podcasts. One day we're going to record it for you so you can see the eye rolls that I get when when we talk about this. I, I am not rolling my eyes at 
intersectionality of... No, it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Like as a novel, mm-hmm. it was like four layers of childhood trauma and disability and feminist stuff and cultural relevant events mm-hmm. and platonic or maybe romantic gender relationships. Like mm-hmm. I just was like, this is literally all the things. This is all the, the, the things. The thing that didn't bother me about that though is because it the book is so laser focused on these two characters. I mean Marks as well, but to a lesser degree. I mean, the thing that for me was like, it felt so intimate of a portrait of these two people that that never felt like an issue for me. It always felt like this is a book about these, these two friends and the way they come in and out of each other's lives and the way they bump up into each other. And the thing that I really liked was the portrait of this friendship where each of them are so private. Mm-hmm. Like they are clearly so incredibly meaningful to each other's lives. And yet they don't talk about any of the big things happening in their lives, which, I mean, there was a point towards the back end of the book where I just wanted to knock the two of their heads together and be like, you know, if you guys had an honest conversation about your feelings at any point, this could have been avoided. But I also liked that because that also felt realistic to some people's friend. It's a type of friendship you rarely see in books. Mm -hmm. One that is incredibly intimate, but also incredibly private. Yeah. I liked that aspect of it too, but I do, I mean, all joking aside, I see where you're coming from, Laura, in terms of like, it is a lot in a small space and Mm -hmm. sort of like this not, you know, it's not like it's this overarching, like many, many years, you know, it's not, it's not an epic. It's a smaller novel that does tackle a lot, but I, I, I enjoyed it though. I felt like I, I, I liked, I liked the exploration of friendship. I think Mm -hmm. more than anything else. That's what kind of stuck out to me. Like, I, I yeah. agree with you. Also, I like her writing. I mm-hmm. want to be clear. Yeah. I like Gabrielle Zevin's writing. I really liked that it was a novel about video games when mm-hmm. I'm loosely judging that her demographic is probably primarily female. Mm-hmm. So, like, there were some things that I liked about it. Yeah. It was... You know, there's an event that happens towards the end of the book where I was like, okay, this is literally <laughs> all the things. voice. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, that was Steph's first. And we had a lively conversation about that. <laughs> Yasmin, what's the first book that you want to share with us? My first one is a book called Small Things Like These by an Irish writer named Claire Keegan. It came out in 2020, I think. 2021. It's such a beautiful book. It is so small and so quiet and such a small little portrait of an an Irish farmer and his encounter with a young girl who works at what is supposed to be one of the Magdalena laundries in Ireland. So you know, what, what does that mean? The Magdalena laundries were when you were either abandoned by your family or you got pregnant or you were raped or you anything that put you on the outside of like... The troublemaker category. Yes. Outside of like Catholic, Dublin, Irish life. You got sent oftentimes to these girls' schools that were called laundries and... It was a school in combination of a laundry service. And so they would be like, oh, we're teaching the girls to work. We're putting them to 
we're, you know, we're teaching them moral fortitude and character. But what came out actually in the 80s was just how terrible these places were. They were abusive. They were destructive. They were not helping girls. Many of them were raped again and re-traumatized again in these laundries. But it was something that the Irish didn't talk about because it was run by nuns. So it was like the Sisters of the Magdalena ran it. Ireland was seeped in you know, Catholicism. So they felt like, well, the nuns are doing the right thing. The nuns are helping the girls. So when, you know, knowing what I know about Irish history, the like to see this man's reaction to meeting this girl and like the struggle he goes through of, you know, kind of learning about the realities of her situation and comparing it to what he is supposed to think about the church and about the Magdalena sisters, you know, and his just relationship with his wife and her reticence to say anything. And again, it's like, it's really, really small, quiet book. And it's mostly just him thinking, him talking to the girl and him talking to his wife. So you don't get like a deep insight into what's happening at the laundries. You get his reaction to this girl, but it's just so, I keep saying quiet. It's such a quiet, thoughtful, moving portrait of a relationship. And I talked about this last year, but like I've been really reflecting a lot on being able to reach across a divide and being able to connect with someone who is so different from you and who doesn't understand your lived experience. And I just saw that portrayed in this novel so well. Like it's just meeting this girl makes this man question everything. And it's not in a drastic, oh my goodness, every I have to rethink my life. It's just like, oh, wait a minute. This is not right. Like I should be doing something else. And I feel like given where we have been as a country, it resonated with me of this idea of just, okay, I can just have a conversation and I can just do this small thing to help this person who I know is in a bad situation. It doesn't have to be about changing the world. It doesn't have to be about like violating politics or doing all this crazy stuff. It's just like a human to human contact. And that's what I loved about it so much that it's so small and just really gets at like the heart of humanity. Mm -hmm. What's the name of the book again? Small Things Like These. When does it take place? Like 60s, 70s. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Where did you hear about this book? NPR. I heard about it on NPR. And I also heard about it because I was, there's another book about Irish history by a journalist named Fenton O'Toole. And I had read that. And then this was part of like, I I think I, I read, I heard about Claire Keegan on NPR. And then I read about her when I was reading review of this other book. So I, I also have a, like, I I just have an affinity for Irish culture. I've talked about this before. I was, my ex-husband is Irish and I spent a lot of time there. So it's just something, it's a culture that, believe it or not, like I think as a black American, there is such a crossover in experience with Irish people. And my ex-husband and I found a lot of common ground in terms of feeling marginalized and underrepresented. And so it's just always a culture that I've felt an affinity with. Well, what about growing up and being Muslim in a Catholic school? You know, I I think... Because that's your story. Yes, that's... And I, I don't you know, and there's things about Catholicism that I think are lovely because 
you know, I, my parents converted, so they both come from very large Catholic families. So Catholicism has always been something that's around me, which makes sense that like I have this affinity and understanding for, you know, French culture and Irish culture and these cultures that are seeped in Catholicism because it's a very comfortable world for me. But I will say that like I, even being Muslim at a Catholic school, I did not ever feel othered because I understood the world of Catholicism so much. And even now, and when I go to, you know, like a funeral mass or a wedding mass, like there's something that's really comforting just about the ritual. I don't know. I just, but I, what really struck me about this book was just like how simple the human connection was. And I think that's why I liked it because I feel like everything has been so loud, particularly in an election year leading up to midterms. Like everybody's voice is so loud and opinions are so important that this little book that was about these small, magnificent moments was just so appealing to me. Well, that's so good. That sounds beautiful. It's really lovely. And there's another book of hers out that was published in 2010 called Foster. And that just got reissued. And it's also very lovely, but I'm not going to talk about it because I have a limit of the books I can talk about people. <laughs> but if you, it, it's very much that same style though of, you know, and I, and I think it's a nice contrast to all the noise in the world to, to just remember our humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of noise, I'll go next. And mine is a big buzzy bestseller, which is not normally what I would choose for this episode, but I just finished it. And as Stephanie already mentioned, I I do tend to have an affinity for the (laughs) books I read in the back half of the year and sometimes forget about books I read in the first half of the year. Also, that's not just us, by the way. I feel like the best books of the year are often published in the fall. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's recency bias, though. I mean, that's just human nature. We all we all think the best thing is the last thing we saw. Right. But this book I only read because it was getting like so, so, so much buzz. It's a celebrity memoir, which I feel like I've talked about celebrity memoir on this episode in the past. And it's funny. It's not like I read a ton of celebrity memoirs. I think when you live in... Hollywood, you might have a different relationship to that genre. (laughs) Because you might work with those people. Uh You might know them. (laughs) Which sometimes makes you want to read them more, right? If you know Mm -hmm. them. Absolutely. Other times, revelations in those types of books are like less surprising if you already sort of exist in that world. Or sometimes you can like tell that it's like phony baloney Mm -hmm. because that's not really what the world is, you know, whatever. So, but I love a celebrity memoir, by the way, I'm not, I've read great books. Like I am not talking about this book today, but I love Dave Grohl's memoir that Mm. came out this year. It's an excellent music memoir. But the one I'm trying to talk about is Jeanette McCurdy's book that came out in 2022 called I'm Glad My Mom Died. And I do not know her. I was not familiar with her. Obviously the title of this book is shocking. Mm Mm-hmm. And I almost has a hesitancy around how shocking it was of just like, is this the equivalent of like memoir clickbait? Like, mm-hmm. what is this? I, I since have read after I finished the book that she had kind of a solo performance show, like a one woman show that was called I'm Glad My Mom Died. And this book, you know, is a spinoff of that. That sort of made more sense to me in the in the bigger picture. But I didn't know any of that when I picked it up. I truly bought it on Audible because I had an Audible credit. 
I don't do a ton of audiobooks, but I do like to do memoir when it's read by the author. And everyone was talking about this one. So I sort of took a chance on it with low expectations. <laughs> and yet here we are. And it is definitely one of the books that made the biggest impact on me this year. It's very well written. Mm-hmm. It is shocking if that's sort of what you like in your, you know, memoir, nonfiction. It definitely lives up to jaw-dropping tales of abuse, mm-hmm. stage mother abuse, and all of those things. First of all, you can I want to say you can read this book if you are not familiar with Jeanette McCurdy. She was an actress on a very uh, multiple very popular shows, primarily on Nickelodeon. She was a character on iCarly and then later a spinoff of that called Sam and Cat. I was loosely familiar with those shows, but my kids are like too young for them. Obviously, I was too old for them. So, you know, I didn't really fall in her fan base or familiarity even. But it's still a really great book. (laughs) I hate to say great. These kind of books are hard to talk about because Mm -hmm. it's so dark. It's so there's abuse. There's a lot of eating disorder stuff, which is actually one of the sort of triggers I want to give for people that I feel like, not that there was too much content. It's obviously a big part of her life, but there was very specific eating Mm -hmm. disorder talk in this book, which I think for some people that is actually quite damaging to read such specifics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's explicit. Very explicit. But the family stuff, It's interesting because it's not, this is how I read it. And maybe this is just my lens. It's not really about Hollywood. She doesn't talk that much about the actual shows she was on. Mm -hmm. She sort of alludes to some scandals that are happening there that are Mm -hmm. very easily Googleable. But the story is really about her relationship with her mom. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Which could happen in other other industries or other areas or whatever, you could have a very dysfunctional relationship with this mom who was clearly abusive and narcissistic and all of those things. And maybe that's why this book lands with so many people because it has the sort of juicy factor of it being Hollywood. But then when you read it, if there's anyone in your life or any situation in your life that you feel like you relate to this because this could happen in, you know, anywhere, except that it's like, insanely bizarre. So I don't mean to say it's like commonplace, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, just the, the ideas of very, very dysfunctional family relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's hoarding, there's all, all kinds of things. I mean, I, and actually some of the things that I wanted to hear more about, she doesn't write as much about. And then some, like what? there's a family reveal at the end that I feel like she oh. sort of glosses over. Yeah. And I, would have wanted to hear more about that. She goes into some of her boyfriend stuff, which was actually less interesting to me. I'm sure some people like eat up the dating in mm-hmm. Hollywood scene, but I cared more about this sort of parental, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, the family stuff. I felt like more. because that was newer, it felt like if, it felt like she wasn't sure what to say about it. Yet. Yeah. Cause she, she, she's still living it. She, she hasn't processed it. She hasn't processed it yet. And the book was about, you know, like her mom, as you said. But yeah. I, I have to say, this book was so deeply traumatizing for me because yeah. I was a child actor. And it was, I appreciate it for that reason, mm-hmm. that it is probably the only memoir that is 
so honest mm-hmm. about how most kids don't want to be there. I, <laughs> and yeah. even if you say you want to be there, you're supposed to say that and mm-hmm. you're financially supporting your family and you don't want to let anyone down and you're the star of this multi-million dollar production that employs hundreds of people. And it's a lot of pressure for a young person to be in. So you're never going to get the right answer from a kid in Hollywood. You're yeah. never going to get the truth. And I thought she did a really eloquent job of saying that mm-hmm. and just like getting straight to the heart of this is, this was, this is not my thing. And this then, was my mom's thing. She was doing yeah, it for yeah, her she mom. She was doing it for her mother. And most, and most of us were, right? Or most of us were doing it for another adult. Yeah. It's really hard when you're 11 when you have this adult that is famous and they are asking you to do this thing and saying, you're so good and you're the heart of this. Like you have no ability and sense of self to say, I don't want to do it mm-hmm. because pe- they will tell you this show's riding on you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm eight. <laughs> I, I will say, even though it is so specific to her mother and their particular relationship, I do think anyone in Hollywood who employs children should be required to read this before they employ kids. Don't even get me started on that. (laughs) And I I mean, I also have lots of feelings about kids in general working and and in Hollywood. But I do think that that is because she is so explicit and is so clear from the very beginning. She had absolutely no interest. And there were a lot of adults along the way who clearly took advantage and and very much ha- every adult in this book has their own agenda mm-hmm. and none of it is hers and that is really heartbreaking and that's the way it is for every single kid in yeah. this business like it's it, whether you're famous or not yeah you are given a just a ton of responsibility tangentially selena gomez does a really good job of talking about this in her documentary yes about her mental health and her anxiety and how she was working since she was seven and she's never stopped and she's 30 and i know a, a lot of people were like that and so there there is this sort of myth in hollywood of like the child star and you burn out because you're spoiled or you're rich or whatever and that's not what it is what it is is that we are putting young people and I can attest to this, having done this, you're putting a young person in an adult role and you are prized if you act like a mini adult, no matter how old you are. And I was eight, nine, 10 when I was having adult conversations about contract negotiations and labor negotiations and, oh, well, you know, can you just go a little bit more because we have to get this shot and we have to finish our days and everything's riding on you. And, you know, it's, it's a lot to put on someone who's not developed mentally. And I, and I think she just, I, I really respect the fact that she was honest about that and that it wasn't like this tabloidy, like, oh, and then I got involved in drugs and then I was this and then it was like, you yeah. know, it wasn't like this burnout story. It was, I'm a really smart young woman. And she was from the mm-hmm. jump, very analytical, mm-hmm. very aware and didn't get to use her talents. Her talents were like reading and writing. Like mm-hmm. that's what she wanted to do. And then she was in this, you know, kid factory. Yeah. She was robbed of a childhood completely. I mean, that is so clear. And she even says it. I mean, that part is really 
you know, you see this early like parentification where she's parenting her own mother and she's paying the bills and all of that. Yeah. But is also like never able to get off the rat race until her mother dies. But I think it's helpful too to give people this sort of insight and make you think twice about the content you're consuming mm-hmm. when it is kid centric and when there are kids in these productions. You know, I think it's important to to be thinking about that. And I think, you know, since 2020, we're all thinking a little bit more about representation. And I I, I do think we need to be responsible consumers and ask ourselves, like, is, is this worth it if this is what I know could be happening, mm-hmm. you know, and is still happening at that place where she made that show? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting you mentioned the Selena Gomez documentary, which I have not watched yet, even though I've recently become a fan of Selena Gomez. Kind of through murders in the building. Me too. <laughs> yeah, it's a great show. It's so fun. I, but I do want to watch her doc. You know who else is pretty vocal about this? Very eloquently vocal in a way that I think makes a big difference. Versus, like you were saying, spinning out and mm-hmm. and becoming known for their drug use or their partying or whatever, which is clearly a coping mechanism for the same thing. But Will Wheaton, mm-hmm. yes, has really wit- written and spoken well about this childhood actor thing and had a very similar situation in which case it was very clearly his relationship with his mother Mm -hmm. and his mother who forced him to do it and yeah he he did a really good job i mean also jeanette mccurdy when she's been promoting this book everywhere and had a really interesting talk when she went on drew barrymore's show who also was a child actor was a child actor at the behest of her mother and and obviously had a lot of Issues stemming from that and has talked extensively about her very fractured relationship with her mother. And there's still no protections. I will say for non-industry people or Hollywood people, like, it is shocking how little protection there is for children. We have more protections for animals on set than we do for kids. And it's, it's atrocious. There's two caveats to my love for this book because I think it's just so Mm -hmm. well-written. One is, if you really loved these shows, it's going to ruin it for you. (laughs) And I'm I'm like, know that going in. Mm -hmm. Two, I listened to this on audio while I was doing stuff around the house. I was sort of multitasking, but I was definitely like tuned into it. I wasn't only half listening. I was really, really into it. I don't know enough about her as an actor, what her performance is like, what her characters are like, anything. I felt like her reading it, she takes a lot of the emotion out of the delivery. Mm. A few times I felt like if I was reading this on the page, what she's describing, it would probably be more powerful. And you'd think the opposite was true because hearing it from her voice would be more powerful. And I don't say this as a criticism of her performance capability, I think probably you're like rushing through something when you're reading out loud your own trauma. I mean, Mm -hmm. that must be a really difficult position to be put in. Yeah. So I was just, but I was noticing this is quite a flat delivery for what you're actually literally saying. Mm -hmm. And I noticed a few times because it is so well-written, like she would deliver a line that I thought was really powerful. And then she would like rush right into the next thing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if I was reading this on the page, I would pause here. Yeah. And So I liked hearing it from her voice. I like hearing nonfiction from the author's voice. But I think maybe because of the content Mm -hmm. and things, 
I sort of wish I'd read it. Yeah. yeah. Which I did read it and I found it to be, I found her writing to be very, very powerful. I think it's also because honestly, unless it's like the whole crux of the book, she's not an actor. Like that's not what she wants to do or really ever wanted to do. She's, I think she's a thinker and a writer. Mm-hmm. So I think it would always kind of come out like that versus someone like Viola Davis, who also had a memoir out this year. And like that shit is like performed. You know, and like very Viola Davis style. And like, it's the same thing. It's really reliving trauma. But you can tell that she has a sense of herself as a performer that I feel like Jeanette McCurdy doesn't have because that's never how she conceived of herself. Mm -hmm. Right. She's just a writer reading a book. She's not an actor reading Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. Okay. We spent a lot of time on that, but we all three read it, which is rare. (laughs) Well, clearly I love reading books, but did you know that I also write them? My next book is called The Life Council, 10 Friends Every Woman Needs, and it is the book about friendship that I needed when I was 25 and when I was 35, and now, solidly in my 40s, I still need some friendship guidance, and so I wrote a book I think will help us all. The Life Council will be in the world in April 2023, but you can pre-order it now, and let me tell you why you should. When you pre-order The Life Council, you will receive the book launch week, either to your doorstep or directly to your e-reader or audiobook app. And that means no waiting, no errands to run. There it is, ready for you to read. Also, we are only doing a limited run of hardcover copies. The paperback copy will be available for everyone, but if you want that hardcover, you must pre-order because those will sell out. Also, I am working on some stellar pre-order bonuses that will be available only with proof of purchase, and you are going to want these pre-order goodies, I promise you. You can pre-order my next book, The Life Council, on Amazon, bookshop.org, barnesandnoble.com, or from your favorite bookstore. To learn more, go to thelifecouncilbook.com. That's thelifecouncilbook.com. And now, back to the best books of the year. Let's move on to our next round. Side note, we can't spend as many minutes as we just did on our first round. Do okay. I say this every year? You, you do. do. And then we do. And then you tell us to be pithy and then we're not. And then we promise to be pithy and, and we're incapable of and it. And everybody says, I listen to the whole two and a half hours <laughs> every year. So like give the people what they want. <laughs> okay. What we want is Steph for you to tell us your second pick. Okay, so we're going to follow up a really harrowing read with a really aggressive title with another really harrowing read with a really (laughs) aggressive title. (laughs) So my next book is called People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present by Dara Horn. And before we get any further, Stephanie is Jewish. (laughs) I just want to say that because it's 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 important. So... I was raised in a family. My mother's family is Jewish. My father's is not. I was raised with Christmas trees, but also Hanukkah and Passover. And my family barely celebrates at all. But also at the same time, my grandparents fled Europe during the Holocaust. And being the grandchild of refugees has been really certainly something that kind of shaped my personality in my childhood. That being said, like this book definitely, I think, primarily Jewish people probably will read it. I actually recommend people who are not Jewish read it. So the book is a series of essays from this writer, Dara Horn, who writes about a bunch 
of different topics on how Jews are treated and portrayed in the world. And why is it that people seem to be obsessed with telling stories of the Holocaust and telling stories about dead Jews, but don't actually care about people who are Jewish and alive? There's been a lot of, I mean, I picked this book up because there's obviously we've all noticed the rise in anti-Semitism in the last few years. And I have all sorts of feelings about that. But she writes really eloquently and also in, in such with such incredible anger. The book, it, she is sarcastic and angry and cynical and bleak and also was a really kind of clarion voice saying a lot of things that I've been feeling. Her first essay is about Anne Frank and, and tackles a few different kind of issues around Anne Frank and the Anne Frank House. A few years ago, she talks about there was an issue where a Jewish employee of the Anne Frank House was wearing yarmulke and was told not to because the museum said, and I quote, we are politically neutral, which is, first of all, absolute nonsense. There's also nothing politically not neutral about wearing a yarmulke. Mm -hmm. And also they clearly didn't understand the sense of irony attached to at the famous place where Jews had to hide telling someone who's Jewish to hide that they are Jewish. But the other thing that she talks a lot about is the way that Jews are portrayed in the media and portrayed in pop culture. She talks a lot, specifically with Anne Frank, why is it that the diary of Anne Frank is the book that we all read? When she was in hiding, but this is a young girl who died in a concentration camp, but the diary stops before she gets there. And the thing that she talks about that has always been the thing that really bothered me is the most famous quote from her diary is, despite everything, I still feel, I still believe people are good at heart, which she wrote before she was betrayed, before she was sent to a concentration camp, to a death camp, where almost her entire family, except for Otto, died. Why is it we read that and not say, Night by Elie Wiesel, which is his experiences in Auschwitz and his experiences of, you know, his father dying and all the people around him dying. And it, we're unwilling to really look at it. We like that she is hopeful. We like that she redeems us. She believes that people are inherently good at heart. Whereas if you read Night, you know, which you in the original title, Night was called and the world remained silent. And that's the thing. It's like we're not willing to really engage. She also talks about why are we so obsessed with rescuer stories, which is something, you know, the non-Jewish rescuer mm -hmm. who helps save the Jews. And she points out some things that are, again, like really, really bleak. In Israel at Yad Vashem, they give, a national, they give a national award called Righteous Among the Nations, which is an award given to non-Jewish people who helped save Jews during the war. And there's something like 20, 30,000 people who've, who've been given the award some posthumously. And that can make you feel really good about the world until you realize there were over 300 million people living in Europe. And the point that she makes is that's a rounding error. And when we identify so strongly through pop culture and through media and through books with people who are the rescuers, we are not actually acknowledging what happened. So that's, she talks a lot about that. She also talks about, there's a memorial to Jews in Harbin, which is a city in China that was actually largely created by Jews. So they have memorials everywhere and they've like refinished the synagogue and all of this stuff. And at no point does anyone talk about why there are no Jewish people in Harbin anymore. It's like unmentioned in any of the memorials and it's because they were 
expelled and largely murdered. So it's, I mean, like, it's a really harrowing book to read. I have a couple of caveats to this book. The first of which is she is Ashkenazi. The book is a very distinctly Ashkenazi point of view and mostly centers the Ashkenazi narrative. Not all Jews are Ashkenazi and Ashkenazi Jews tend to be usually centered in narratives, especially in this country because the majority of Jews in this country are Ashkenazi. The other thing is she makes a couple of comments kind of sprinkled throughout about Israel that I don't agree with. And I do think it's worth kind of reading anyway. And I think, especially for people who read books about the Holocaust, you know, it doesn't have to be like the boy in the striped pajamas, but like stuff like that. If you are someone who reads stuff like that, I think it is really worthwhile to read this book and really think about what it is you are consuming and why you are consuming it and what it is that attracts you to those kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really dark, but I think is incredibly meaningful. That's really interesting. Yeah. There has been, I feel, a tipping point. I have a bit of a bias here, like a taste or preference bias here, but it does feel to me that there has been a bit of a tipping point between reading about history as a way to learn, educate yourself, mm-hmm. not want to repeat it, mm-hmm. etc., which is a noble reason to read interesting history. Mm-hmm. And it becoming like a weird World War II Holocaust fetish. Yes. And I've noticed it. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's been a, just a huge amount of very popular bestseller World War II novels. Mm-hmm. Those aren't to my taste, which is why I said that that's like a bias. But because they're not to my taste, I feel like I've been able to sort of observe it and be like, what's the deal here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why do so many of them center characters who are not Jewish? It's really like, similar to what happens with a slave narrative. Absolutely. And the white rescuer. Absolutely. The, it's it's know, the struggle the story. Savior. It's the struggle story. And why is it would we rather read something about, or it happens all the time in movies. Why would you rather watch a movie about Black people who are enslaved than watch something about Black people now who are live living right. any multifaceted life than they have. Yeah, or like the Green Book scenario. Absolutely. You it's center the black character, but it's really about the white character. It's about the white character and how good they are and how yeah. noble they are. And and then you are asked as the audience to relate with that character. Yeah. And that's so much of the issue mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. you're being asked to relate with this to the savior. Mm-hmm. And and then there's also all sorts of different things about saviors. But it okay. is there though a way to look at it as that it's inspiring people to do the right thing in the future. Like if you've read a lot of narratives about how you can change the course of history, mm-hmm. like we're, you know, a savior narrative, if you will, but then if it calls for it, that then more people might stand up. Like it's all that you read though, then you don't get the flip side, right? Like if you're only, and I think like that's yeah. the point in that essay is that like, if all we're reading and touting is Anne Frank and we're not, looking at night or the amazing play I never saw another butterfly which mm-hmm. is another it's like through children's eyes who were in the camps then you then you don't see the flip side of it and so then it can easily become oh no no people are good this is this is a story about this people who saved her and people are good and that's mm-hmm. what I take away from the holocaust is that people are inherently good which is absolutely the wrong message mm-hmm. and not at all the message that Germany gives its students, by the way. <laughs> no, it's not. It's very much an American perspective. Yes. Germany teaches the Holocaust very, very differently and and really actually tries to reckon with their past. And I think that's the thing is like, I will always be the person to say that you should read Night. 
Yeah. There are also lots of other books. I mean, Primo Levi, and like there are tons of other books. You know which one I really like? I just actually had my daughter read is The Devil's Arithmetic. Yeah, sure. It's because it's actually about Jewish people. It's actually about Jewish people. It's yeah. written by a Jewish person, but also she's ten. Yeah, she has a child, yeah. and that's the thing is like when you were talking about different, you know, and Frank is is easy to digest for kids because she was a kid and she was writing at a child level. But I think you are starting out of the gate teaching the wrong messages exactly. and not, and I have a lot of respect for her. And, and she was, a, she would have been an amazing writer mm-hmm. had she survived, which she did not. But it I also mean, goes back to no? this idea of like teaching kids the hard truth, right? Yeah. Like this is why I like devil's arithmetic because characters die. Yeah. You, you are confronted with, the reality of mm-hmm. the gas chambers and all these other the atrocities that were happening. And I I firmly believe that, we, you know, when we're thinking about literature and history for children, we cannot shy away from the ugly piece of it. But again, that's a very American perspective to want to keep kids safe. It is. And not be honest with them. Yeah. And also, I mean, look, she, she makes a larger point as well about just that, like, we should be talking about other Jewish narratives. Why do people fetishize... Jews who have died as opposed to reckoning with what is really happening. We've reached a point in just time where most survivors have died and, and all of them will be dead soon. And we're getting farther and farther away from, I mean, for me, it was my grandparents who are no longer with us, but also like why we should, because people are so focused only on stories of Jews who have died and specifically Holocaust stories, we have gotten to a point where we don't associate like Jewish people with, I mean, it's a little different in LA because LA has a much larger Jewish population. Although, I mean, in the entire country, Jews are about 2% of this country, something like 65% of all religiously based hate crimes. Yeah. And I think it's something that we all need to really kind of think about. Anti-Semitism has mm-hmm. dramatically been on the rise in the last number of years. And if we don't tell stories about Jewish people who are alive and thriving and like living now and not only in the past. And it's the same thing with... And not only with the trauma of that. And not only the trauma. And also just like, it's the same way that we have a tendency to only talk about stories about indigenous people and the Trail of Tears and all the things that have I mean, And these sad, sad the reservations sad, and like... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's also like people who are indigenous are alive today. Yeah. You know, when you root them in the past, you... It's like these people cease to exist. Mm-hmm. You know, we should be supporting art and, and thinking about the way that we tell these stories. So it's... I mean, it's, it's a really... It is... She is so angry and so sarcastic and... And really, really confrontational. And I also think now was exactly the right time to write this book. Yeah. Like, we all needed to be confronted. Yeah. So it's called (laughs) People Love Dead Jews, Reports from a Haunted Present by Dara Horn. And it came out last year in 2021. Wow. It's just super fascinating. Yeah. I wonder if Anne Frank, not the human, the book, The Diary of Anne Frank. Yeah is one of those things that we can appreciate for what it taught a certain segment of the population of the world population, really. Mm -hmm. And we can also move forward with what we know now a little bit like to kill a mockingbird. Exactly. Which really, you know, taught a lot of people, a a, Mm -hmm. maybe a point of view they hadn't ever heard, but also like we've really moved beyond that. We have. And also we need to allow her as a person 
to exist with her humanity and not ask her to stand in for six million people who were murdered. Mm -hmm. She's not six million people. She was one very specific teenage girl. Mm -hmm. And asking her to be the stand-in for everyone is is just troublesome. Yeah. You know? Well, that was so good stuff. And you you don't normally do nonfiction. I brought you nonfiction. I read the last one that we talked about. I won't lie to you. Real proud of myself right now. Brought (laughs) nonfiction. (laughs) Yasmin, what's your next book? Sort of in the same vein, but not. Mine is Mercury Pictures Presents by Anthony Mara. New York Times bestseller. Everyone was excited about it. This book was like, this, the story is fine. This book is about the writing. The writing in this book is exceptional. And like Faulkner level exceptional, where there were sentences where I was like, this is delicious. I have to read it again. And like, it sat with me. Like I could, okay, forgive me and like how pretentious I'm about to be, but I am a former English teacher, but it felt like there were paragraphs where I was like, this is why people write books because of this grouping of words together that is so beautiful. So Mercury Pictures Presents takes place in Los Angeles and in Italy. It's 1941. It's I, I have a special place in my heart because this book takes place where I currently work, like on the street corner where <laughs> I currently work. So I was very excited that like I was reading characters who were walking in the same places that I walked. But so it's 1941 and Artie Feldman is like the head of like a B-movie studio where it's just like horror movies, spaghetti westerns, like all this stuff. But his right hand is a woman who started as a typist and her name is Maria Lagana. And the whole story is just filled with immigrants leaving Europe and just how they made their lives in Hollywood. And like they're all coming and they do different things. Some of them become writers. Some of them, bec- there are architects that build sets. And then there's other architects that build miniatures. And then the miniatures go on to like build fake cities for the army to practice invading Germany. Like it's, it's wild, but it takes place in LA, my, my home, my hometown. Like I love Los Angeles on a very deep level. And I learned things about LA that I didn't know. So like areas that were close to where I grew up had been populated with Italian immigrants. And now it's mostly Latinos and El Salvadorians and black people. But at a time, it was just like a thriving metropolis for Italian immigrants. And so there was just all of this great stuff like LA. It combines all my favorite things like LA history, Hollywood history, immigrant stories. And it's just so hopeful. Like, which is again, like why I work in Hollywood. And one of the things I love about Hollywood is that you come here and you can make yourself again. You can like remake yourself. You can be something new. And I've had that in my own life where I went from being a teacher to being, you know, a TV executive. And I was, you know, reticent about like taking this new job at a studio and being a part of like a different world. But this book, like, it was a perfect time to come out and a perfect time for me to read it because it reminded me what I love, not only about my hometown, but what I love about the work that I do. And specifically because I work in diversity and inclusion and to read these stories of this, like, 
mishmash of people who came from all over and made these beautiful films. And it's not, you know, entirely fiction, like Billy Wilder, like Mm -hmm. these amazing people, you know, Elia Kazan, like all of these people were refugees. They came from elsewhere and they made this incredible, quintessentially American art. And there's also a whole story about Maria's, you know, there's like her family in Italy and how she ended up in the States and this like dark secret that she keeps. So there's a lot of like intrigue and regular things that you find in a big novel but it's, it doesn't stop there. It just keeps going to all these little stories. And it's just so incredibly hopeful. And I needed that to think back historically of times that were worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was freaking out. And my husband reminded me, this happened before. This happened with the Spanish flu. And people survived. And they found a cure. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have to have faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. And this book really reminded me of that as well, of like bad stuff happens and the human spirit is resilient in a lot of different ways. Like it's not always going to be the big hero story. It's going to be these small things like, oh, I moved here and I didn't, I wasn't quite sure what job I could get. And then I fell into music scoring at Paramount Studios and that's my job. That's my legacy. This book sounds amazing. I want to read this. It's so beautiful. You would love it so I'd much. love this, right? Yes. I'm this surprised is, you hadn't read it, actually. It sounds so deeply up in my alley. But really, as I said at the, at, the, uh, at the start of this, this book is about the writing. Anthony Mara does such a beautiful, beautiful job of just using language that is so rich and moving and visceral. Like, I, I felt this book. And in, in a really good way, not like, oh, I felt this book and it was so heavy and sad, but like, I felt this book and it brought me hope. Can't wait to read. I'm so excited. Y'all are bringing it. <laughs> I feel like I'm particularly eloquent today. <laughs> it must be the champagne. Mm-hmm. It's always the champagne that makes us less pithy, perhaps, but, but more do, eloquent. I do have to I mean, like, I was so excited, though, because it's like, She's walking on the corner of Sunset and Gower. And I was like, I read that. (laughs) I love when that happens. Like, it just, it was just nice. Okay, so y'all just said some deep stuff. And I'm going to take a lighter turn. Great. (laughs) Actually, the concept of this book isn't light at all, but it is a much lighter book than either of the ones that y'all just described. I'm going to talk about The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. Mm, so good. Good book. Oh, we all read this one yep. too? Yeah. God, I'm really picking them, huh? Okay, so I chose to talk about this book in particular on this episode. I'm glad we've all read it so that we can talk about it because this book is so interesting to me because the concept is very deep. The premise is very deep, but the actual execution in the book is like sort of light. It's a little beach ready. Yeah. It's a little smart fluffy, yeah. right? which you know, I love. That's true. Right up your alley. That's right up my alley. Yeah. So I don't always love smart fluffy. I mean, I have a few exceptions. Leanne yeah. Royarty is yeah. Yeah. She's smart, fluffy. smart yeah. fluffy. This book isn't very much like her, but like, I don't know that smart fluffy is really, you know, my like main wheelhouse by any means. I kind of like 
darkness? Yes, you do. You mean the the Stephen Queen Stephen. queen like Stephen King's queen? Like, yes, you do like dark. The premise of this book is dark, though, and so this is what happens in The Measure, which was you know a big hit this summer. A lot of people were talking about it, and it's funny because my first pick was also a big buzzy book, and not all of my picks will be that way today, but these two are. The premise of The Measure is. Everyone wakes up one day, like the whole entire world. It doesn't matter if you live in a mansion, in an apartment, in a hut, in a shack, if you're homeless. Every adult over the age of 21 wakes up one day and there is a box outside of wherever they have been sleeping. And inside the box is a string and it becomes you know, abundantly clear pretty quickly that the string inside of every adult's box is the measure of your life, your lifespan, basically. So some people are afraid and don't open the box, depending on where your time zone is there, you know, you sort of know if you should or not, or obviously it's like a worldwide event. And if your string is short, you are not going to live that long. If your string is long, you are going to live a long time. It's like pretty self-explanatory. And obviously mass chaos ensues. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's so many things in this book that I thought were so interesting and thoughtful. People's reaction to knowing their lifespan, people who choose to know, people who don't choose to know, people who are discriminated against because their lifespan is shorter. Thinking about dating life, if you wanted to date someone or marry someone, depending on their lifespan. The ethics around if we, if everyone knew their lifespan, the grief, of course, Mm -hmm. of finding out that your loved one was not going to live long, finding out that you were not going to live long. So that's the whole premise. There are characters here. This book is a little bit like Crash, the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Where there's like vignettes of characters dealing with this thing. I love that that's what you go with, Crash. I would have gone with like... I mean, at the very least, love, love, like love, actually. Yes. Both of those films are problematic in their own way. They are indeed. But Crash is far more problematic. <laughs> well, I just think of that movie as sort of the quintessential. You're following these like like vaguely um, interrelated people. Yeah, you aren't sure how they're related. I mean, just think until... of it as the movie where racism threw Sandra Bullock down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's just say that was a bad example. <laughs> However, it's these different (laughs) characters, these different vignettes of people dealing with their string, dealing with their boxes. And like I said, it's like a deep premise, thinking about how long one is going to live, mortality, how we would deal with a nation. Again, like the the ethics of it, like how you would make decisions around it if you knew. Mm -hmm. But then it's also like not that deep of... Like, the characters are not that deep, I guess what I'm saying. It's funny because the conceit, when you get it, felt kind of like the leftovers to me. Mm -hmm. But the execution could not have been more different. I mean, Tom Parada's book is heavy. And really thought-provoking and thoughtful, but, like, deep and heavy. And this, the conceit is not that far off. And this one is, like, kind of a breeze. But this is what I loved about it, though, is because I feel like that's exactly how human people would mess it up. 
right? <laughs> like, yes. it's like, it, it was so perfect. You're like, oh, you have this insight, you have this knowledge, and you're just kind of going to be like, eh, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it just, it felt, it felt very on point, I think, in terms of like how we collectively just kind of screw things up or like don't take the serious thing seriously enough and then take the little things too seriously. So it just like, it, it made perfect sense to me, like the juxtaposition of the, the premise and the way it was written of like, this is just how stupid we are. <laughs> also, I feel like, I don't know if I have a soft spot because I, I don't read a ton of these books, like I said, but I, I have a affection for, or just really like that mass market book like this that appeals to a lot of different types of readers. Mm-hmm. A lot of different types of readers can read and still like then have to wrestle with this concept. Mm-hmm. Whereas like a lot of people are not going to read the leftovers. Right. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are not going to watch six feet under like, I, you know, great show. like things that are openly going to be hard to watch. I did not find or read. I did not find the measure to be hard to read. I thought no. it was like fascinating because yeah. of the yeah. lightness of the characters in a way. Like it made me be like, gosh, what would I do if I could know my lifespan versus like, Oh no, what would I do? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the execution is is more fun than you would think with a topic that is ostensibly so heavy. Like it's and there's also it's just it's it's sort of like a very Buddhist concept, right? You know, I don't know if you guys know this, but a couple of years ago I did this whole program called A Year to Live, where you like mm, are yeah. living your life as if it's your last year and you know that the day that you start is the day that you're going to die the following year. I don't like that. So it's it's interesting. <laughs> For the record. Go but on. It's, and, it, and it was really interesting because like, oh, that's when I met you guys. Because I quit my job that mm-hmm. year. Like my life changed so much. My perspective changed. And it wasn't the things that I thought I yeah. was going to change in, a lot, in my last year. You know, I, I became very sort of like purpose-driven in a way that was different than I was already purpose driven. So it's just, but it, it reminded me of that, that like there is, there can be a lot of joy mm-hmm. in knowing if this is, this is when it's going to be done. Who do I want to be in this amount of time? Because bottom line is you never know when your last year of life starts. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, and, and I, I, I liked that conceit of like, Oh, this can be joyful. This doesn't have to be. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, this isn't a spoiler, but it sort of just touches on, well, it touches on so many things. It t- touches on like how the news would handle this, mm-hmm. how like HR departments would handle this. Like, but, you know, it touches, it really glosses over a lot of different things, but not glossing over in a way like it wants to bury it, but more just like, there's a lot that would happen if this really happened. Right. And one of those things is that as it sort of touches on how different nations or cultures react to this yeah and that in italy for example it just is like this isn't even a very long section of italy sort of reacts like we don't need the boxes like we already live like this yeah Mm -hmm. and that's a you know big generalization like sort of a big stereotype but it those are the things from this book because the I'm not, I didn't get super attached to the characters or whatever, but sort of more of like the mentalities that it touched on or the, the ethical questions or some of the relationship stuff really stuck with me more than the actual characters, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons that I 
like brought it to the table here because a lot of times I, I really enjoy character driven novels. Mostly. I don't even, I don't care much about plot. And so I can read a whole novel that's really about people and humanity and relationship and like, but nothing much like happens from mm-hmm. a plot point of view. That's usually a book I would like. I think there's a lot of books like that out there. And this is sort of the opposite where the plot or the thing that's happening is the main thing. Yeah. Like I had to look up like who the characters were. Right. Oh yeah. You don't even remember that. Yeah. No, truthfully, I couldn't, I read this a long time ago because I, I read it for work. So I read it long before it was published. Truth be told, I don't remember a single person who was in it. But I do remember the conceit and how much I enjoyed it. Wait, it's just like super high concept. It's so high yeah. concept. It's it's a it's such a fun read. It's such a perfect like beach read. I know we're not in beach read season. It's a great <laughs> vacation read. Also, if beach read was about dying, sure. <laughs> Which like I'm cool with though. That doesn't bother me. That's not a normal beach read topic. What are you saying? I don't get it. <laughs> So it's one of the books, you know, I chose it for this episode because it's like a a little off the beaten path for me. It was obviously a big, you know, national bestseller. And, and because I was thinking like, if, if listeners wanted a book like this to read, like, I don't know, it just felt, it just felt a little, like it was doing something a little bit different Mm -hmm. and so that stands out for me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I appreciate what you're saying too about it, like, you know, being able to explore these things in a sort of lighthearted manner and that is accessible. You know, it's like a heavy concept that's accessible, which I think is really good. Yeah. It's also, the, it would be a great book for a book club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To discuss or like a book. You know, this is the type of book. Jeff, my husband, is not a big reader and therefore I don't tell him much about what I'm reading. Not that he wouldn't appreciate like concepts or plots or characters or whatever. It's just like most books, it's like too hard to explain to someone a book you're reading, right? Mm -hmm. Like it just is. A book like this, if you have a partner that's not a big reader or friend or whatever, you could, as we did, explain the concept pretty quickly and then talk about it. It's like a conversation starter book. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great elevator pitch to it. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that was The Measure by Nikki Ehrlich. That was my second pick. We are on to round three. Woo! Proud of us. Moving (laughs) Moving right along. Steph, you're up. Okay. So my next book came out actually a couple years ago in 2020, and it's Ghosts by Dolly Alderton. Did either of you... Did you read this, Yasmin? Did you read this, Laura? I didn't read this, but I used to listen to Dolly Alderton's podcast. Mm, Sure. Which is now no longer. And I read part of her book about love. Yeah, she had a nonfiction book. And this is her debut novel. Right. Mm -hmm. So Ghosts is about a young woman named Nina Dean, who is in her early 30s. And kind of at the start of the novel, you know, her life is pretty good. She's just bought her first apartment. She is... Got a, she's single, but she's got a lot of friends and she's really thriving and she's got a career that she loves. She's a food writer. She's about to take out her second book and her life is going really well. And what ends up happening, she's doing a lot of online dating. She's broken up a while earlier with her significant partner who she'd been with for a number of years, but she's great friends with her ex. And so that's all totally fine and no drama. And she's ready to move on. She starts dating. She goes on this app and meets this guy named Max and they end up having this really intense relationship that that blossoms really really quickly and and they get really serious really fast and then after three months 
he completely and totally ghosts her out of the blue, right after he's told her he loves her. And when he disappears, that is when she kind of has to reckon with all of the things in her life that aren't actually going as well as she's pretending. Her best friend who is married and has a child is like totally icing her out. Her mother is having something of a midlife crisis and her father has Alzheimer's and is in pretty significant cognitive decline. Her editor hates her proposal for her third book and she it all kind of forces her to look at what's really happening in her life. Dolly Alderton is British. The whole book takes place in London. And it's this really great look at what it is to be kind of in your early 30s. Most of her friends are married. She has one single friend. And kind of she's taking stock of kind of what's going on with her life and how this guy who just kind of swanned into her life and then swanned back out completely shatters her. And it's really fun and witty and the relationships are great. There's this moment, you know, her, her best friend is icing her out and she's not sure why, and they're just not clicking anymore. And she, there's a scene towards the end where there is a confrontation and it is so incredibly emotionally cathartic and the relationships feel so lived in and you, you know who these people are. It's a quick read, but it's, for something that is ostensibly smart, fluffy, really smart. And the character, Nina, is so incredibly likable, even when she's making really stupid choices. Is this novel autobiographical? I have no idea. I would imagine not, probably within the realm of this writer's lived experience. <laughs> but I only know a little bit about her. I've read a little bit of her nonfiction writing, but I didn't listen to her podcast. So I I really don't know. I went in pretty blind and, and really fell in love with the character. What about this book made it like in your basically your top four? Yeah. Honestly, it was it was the main character. She feels so relatable. She feels like a friend of mine. Not literally, but like she feels like something you get to know so well. It feels like spending the day with your best friend hearing about her life. You know what I mean? Also, I am literally like... That's... It's where I am in my life. That's what I was going to say, because I didn't feel that same way about it. Yeah. Like, it was cute. It was fine. I read it in a day. I actually read it when I had... I think I had like strep throat or something. Like I was just like one of those days where you could not leave the bed. And I mm -hmm. read this book and I remember thinking like, oh, this is what it would be like to be this age now. Yeah. Because it was a while ago for me and it was a different <laughs> time. Right. Like things were different. Like the word ghosted didn't exist when I was in my early 30s. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just it, it was just it, it didn't capture like I didn't, it didn't resonate with me that same way, but I did think that it was a smart book in this genre. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, it wasn't like condescending to women. It was very, in that sense, I, I completely get why you, why it resonated with you so much because you are, you know, as we said, you're, you're younger than us, but you are super smart and very aware and analytical and reflective. And that's all 
scene in that book. Yeah. So she's 30. It, the, the book takes place. It starts on her 32nd birthday and ends on her 33rd. I'm, I have just turned 34. My friends and I are all kind of at the spot in the same age. I work in a creative industry. So does she like she the character felt like my contemporary. Mm-hmm. She felt like if I lived in London, I'd probably know her. Why did both of y'all pick this up? I mean, I used to listen to her show and I didn't pick it up. I went to a bookstore for the first time in a minute. If you go back and probably listen to the first time I was on this podcast, I talked about how I hated e-readers and I never use an e-reader and (laughs) e-readers were horrible. And now I only use my Kindle and I've become a devotee. Thanks to Laura telling me 75 different times to buy a paperweight. She's not (laughs) wrong. But I was at home visiting my parents, went to a bookstore which is how I like to spend my time. And there, it was like a staff recommends pick, which is interesting because it was two years ago. I don't Did you know, go to that great one? In Chaucer's. The, yes. Best bookstore in the world. My friends, Chaucer's in Santa Barbara. Yeah, it was like a staff pick, I think. It was, you know, or it was just like popped out on a shelf and I saw it and I was like, you know what? Sounds like it would be for me. Mine was because I was sick and I needed a book and it was available at the library on the library app. Hmm. So I was go. like, Okay. I need something to read right now. I read it. I will also say that, like, this is my version of reading a romance, which, like, I don't typically, I don't care for romance novels, but I like novels like this that are kind of contemporary slice of life stories, Mm -hmm. you know, about young women. Like, that is just very much a thing that I enjoy. Okay. (laughs) Did I totally throw you for a loop with those? No. I got to throw you with a loop with at least at least once a year where you're like, what are you talking about? No, it didn't throw me for a loop because, again, I'm familiar with her. If I wasn't yeah. familiar with her, I might be like, huh, what a choice. <laughs> I like making choices. I completely get why she likes it, though. Yeah, and it's, it's that special thing that happens and has happened over the years in my life where the book meets the moment in mm-hmm. your life where you have to, like, if I had read this book when I was 22, I probably would be like, oh, interesting, huh. And it's, it's when the book kind of meets the moment. It's like, I mean, I feel the same way about like when I read like Anne of Green Gables, it's like it, you need, sometimes you need books at a particular moment in your when life. When you were an orphan in Canada? Yes. When I was an orphan <laughs> in Canada. No. When I was a mouthy 11 year old who was too smart for her own good. That's when I needed that book. Or when I was too shy and wanted to be a mouthy 11 year old. But like, you know, you got to find the moment. Yeah. yeah that makes books. sense. Yasmin, what's your number three? It's nonfiction. This book came to me from a friend who sent me the podcast. I would say, people, I am not normally a fan of, like, parenting books <laughs> or parenting podcasts, largely because I come from education and I'm like, parents don't know anything. But now that I am a parent, sometimes I find myself, like, just, you know, wanting some help. So my friend sent me this podcast by a woman named Dr. Becky Kennedy, and it's called Good Inside with Dr. Becky. The Which, po- pause, she has been on this show. I know. I saw that. I saw that. So she came on this show at the very be- beginning of the pandemic. Before she was Dr. Becky at Good Inside, she had just started her Instagram account and I had her come on the show. I don't know how I stumbled upon her to talk about anxiety. And Mm -hmm. so it's one of the best episodes of the show. I highly recommend it. It is a bonus episode. So it doesn't have a number. It comes after episode number 57. And Dr. Becky came to talk about anxiety. And it is still, in all my years of podcasting, one of the best conversations I've ever had. Right. And I remember this, which is why I accepted this podcast from my friend. (laughs) 
Okay. Right. Cause I'm not normally like, but I remember listening to that episode and having the conversation about anxiety. And I think you and I were kind of in like a similar space when that episode came out. So all that to say, I'd listened to the podcast and it was about women working and working moms and, you know, having to figure out that you're not going to, that you don't want to have to choose between work and motherhood and that you can find a way to make it work. And then her book came out and this book, you guys, is so good. It's so relatable. It's so honest. She doesn't ever present herself as an expert, which is what I love because she's basically her premise is like, we're all going to mess it up and we're all going to do things that are wrong. And that's okay because we're all generally good people. It reminds me very much of Dolly Chug's book, Good-ish. Uh, her book is called Goodish, the person that you are meant to be. And it's really about like, you know, how you're going to make mistakes when you're trying to understand bias and other people and relationships and that people are just messy. And I think that Dr. Becky does a really good job of meeting parents where they are and saying parenting is messy. Kids are sometimes messy, but what you can do is realize it's not about you. It's not about your reaction. It's about the kid. And being able to say to your kid, you're a good kid having a bad day. That one sentence was transfer, like transformative for our family. Because my husband and I both work a lot. And we have an only child who is precocious and very emotional. She feels things very deeply. And, you know, I'll be honest, we have a very anxiety-ridden house. Even the dog is on, like, Trazodone. But, like, you know, so it's we're just anxious people. So this book was really helpful for my husband and I to have a touchstone and a way to communicate and remind each other, you're a good person having a bad day. This doesn't define your parenthood. And it also just, it just reminded me to do all the things that I know to do from the whole brain child and, you know, Dharma parenting of like pausing and asking your kid, what's going on that you're behaving this way? And like starting with this assumption of positivity and the assumption of goodness, which I do a lot in my work, right? If I'm talking about diversity and inclusion, it's difficult for people. Talking about bias is difficult for people. So I always come from, I'm going to meet you where you are, and I'm going to assume positive intent. But I noticed that I didn't always do that in my parenting. My parenting was like, why are you doing that? You know you're not supposed to do that. Like, why didn't I told you to put your lunchbox away? You know, why is your room still ridiculous? And so I, it just really made me pause and reflect on how I treat people I'm teaching in the workplace, how I treat my, how I used to treat my students, and how I don't do that with my own daughter. And it's just changed her relationship with me. It's changed her relationship with my husband. She is so much calmer. We're all calmer because we're all assuming positive intent. And it's just, you know, I can say like, you're a good kid having a bad day. This doesn't define you. And what, what can I do to help whatever you're feeling? And so it's not, it's like, and again, this is like basic parenting advice, but you forget it in the moment. You forget that it's not about the behavior because that's what you're mad at, particularly when you're stressed and you're busy. And I just thought she did such a good job of being open and honest and not condescending and not judgmental. And it was accessible. My husband, also not a big reader, 
And bless his heart, because he's a white guy born in America. He just thinks he knows how to do things without actually ever learning <laughs> them. So, you know, like, I, it, it, this was a great book for him to just sort of be like, oh, snap. Like, I really don't know what I'm doing. And, I, and that's okay, because I want to learn how to be better at this. So I just, I mean, I honestly think that, like, it just really transformed my relationship with my daughter, because coming out of the pandemic as an only child, I think it was really stressful for her. And as I said, she's precocious and very empathetic. And that is hard when you are surrounded with like neurotic, empathetic parents. <laughs> so I just think it's, you know, and I can just see the difference in her and how in the other day she was so cranky about something and she was just like being really rude, which I don't tolerate. And I just was like, well, what's going on that you're being so rude to me? And she was like, I'm just tired. She was like, I'm just so tired. And she'd had the flu, she had COVID. She was like, I'm just tired, mommy. And I just, you know, I have all these things that I'm doing and I love them, but I'm tired. And I was like, okay, that's okay. And she left and she came back and she gave me a hug. And she was like, I'm so sorry I was cranky. I love you. And I was just like... Thank you, Dr. Becky. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I was, it's, I don't know. It's just, there's something about the way that this particular book was written that I felt like it was okay to learn from. Cause I don't, I'm not the type of parent that like subscribes to this, like, like the mommy wars. Like I don't do it. I'm not heavily invested in like the PTA and all of this stuff. Like I'm, I'm like the mom that drops. I actually, I don't even drop my kid off. My husband does. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm like not there. I'm working. But it didn't feel like, oh, this is going to make me the best mom. It felt like, oh, everybody's screwing up and this is going to make me a little bit better. Mm -hmm. This is going to make my life a little bit easier. This is make my kid a little bit happier. Well, I think Dr. Becky is so incredibly talented at communicating. And so I can see this translating what you're saying from a tone point of view, like non-shaming, mm -hmm. giving you some scripts. I think that's what she's really good on Instagram about. You know, she came on 10 Things to Tell You to talk about anxiety. And she's a child psychologist, so it's it was very obvious that her a lot of her content would, of course, then be about parenting, which I don't take in as much. I don't read parenting books. I don't listen to parenting podcasts, not because I know it all. <laughs> clearly, but because sort of like we were talking about earlier about how some, some writers don't read much when they're writing because they're scared it will affect their own natural voice. I feel that on a, on a soul level about parenting content, I operate in a parenting way from like a very natural source and I can get real tangled up. But I feel mm. like that's where like that's, that's where you and I differ. And I remember when I, I went out for coffee with you when I stopped working because I wanted basically to know, like, how do you, how do you be a mom full time? Like I'm new to this. And, and what I have always admired about you is that it does come from like a very soulful place. Like you are a, a natural mother and not like the earth mother hippie way, but like you have your kids are very well adjusted and you have these honest, frank conversations with them about, about their privilege, about their life, about the world. And like, it, it just comes to you. And like, I am a natural teacher. I am not a natural parent to a little person. Mm. Like I have taught high school for 18 years. 
I don't know what to do with a 10 year old. So it was really helpful for me to be able to really understand developmentally where kids are and what I should expect from her. You know, like I, because again, my reference is 16 and up. Like, give me a teenager any day, I'm great with them. But, you know, a little people, I don't know. And this tween thing is like, that's a, that's a whole new thing for me. But I feel like you didn't have that same struggle. Like you were like, oh, okay, my kid is getting a little bit older. She's going to be tweeny. I'm like, you became very involved with like the mom group and like all of these things just came naturally to you. And it doesn't come naturally to me. Like I don't have like a group of mom friends. Like I, as I said, like I don't. When I go to drop off, they're like, who are you? <laughs> so it's, it, it was helpful for me that way, but I understand why that's not where you would go. But again, like you're much more natural at it than I am. I have to try to parent. I feel like you just instinctively know what your kids need. Well, thank you for that. That's very kind of you to say. I also really do trust Dr. Becky's like advice and approach. Mm -hmm. So like I'm co-signing this and you're even making me want to read it because I do really like how she assumes not just that the kids are good, but that the parents are good. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that we're all just trying to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. which again, I fundamentally believe about everybody I encounter work-wise, but I don't believe it about myself. Or sometimes about my husband. My first instinct is not, oh, you're trying to do the right thing. My first instinct is like, oh, God, you effed it up again, you know? <laughs> like, why Why did anyone let you have this child, right? <laughs> but but it, it, she really does help you see yourself as good. Yeah. Which, again, I became a mom later in life. It wasn't something I thought I was going to do. I had never really wanted kids. So... This is, it's, this is still like a new thing for me. This was the first book I've ever read where I was like, oh, I'm doing a good job, you know? Mm-hmm. And not like, oh, wow, I have so much to catch up for. Or I should just start saving for therapy or rehab now, you know? <laughs> like, it, But it's, yeah, so it really, it really changed how I see myself as a parent and how I see my husband, you know? And our kid is, our kid is all right. Yeah, she is. She's good. She's yeah. a good kid. I don't think we had anything to do with that. I feel like she was just born naturally. She came out that way. She is. She's so nice. Like, her first instinct is to be kind. And I'm like, well, you didn't get that from me. (laughs) She just cannot conceive of people being mean. I'm like, yeah, we're not. If you didn't look like me, I wouldn't know that you were my kid. Um, (laughs) And she doesn't like it when I swear. She said I sounded trashy. Oh, my. (laughs) So you sound trashy when you swear. I was like, ugh. I'm so prudish. Uh, <laughs> She'll loosen up with time. I don't She's think she will. 10? I don't think she will. She's really like a naturally like kind-hearted soul. That's lovely. I love that. I'm so glad that you talked about that book and that we could talk about Dr. Becky's son. That's amazing. Quick break to tell you about my membership community called Secret Stuff. If your favorite episodes here at 10 Things to Tell You are about books, then you should know that every month over at Secret Stuff, I do a personal reading roundup with what I read, both good and bad, that month. We also have a book club meeting over Zoom every single month with the best discussions about some truly amazing books. And this month on Secret Stuff, you'll hear a bonus conversation with me, Yasmin, and Stephanie, where we share what best-selling books of 2022 that we didn't love. Womp womp. 
But Secret Stuff is not all reading-related material. I also share personal episodes there that are a little more raw, a little less polished than what hits the feed here. And we have a monthly Zoom gathering called Symposium, where we just pick a topic and discuss it as a community. There's no prep, you just show up. Symposium is truly the backbone of the Secret Stuff community, and it has become the most valuable thing I do on the internet. To join us over at Secret Stuff, go to lauratremaine.com slash secret stuff. That's lauratremaine.com slash secret stuff, or look for a link in the show notes. And now back to the best books of the year. Is it my turn again? It is. <laughs> is this the, f- no, this is the end of the third round. Yeah, this is my third book. And I have talked about so far two books that came out in 2022. This book came out in 2020, so it's not old by any means, but it it is not a new release this year. And it is actually, I think, even though we're not really exactly ranking them like this, I actually think this is my favorite book of the year, best book of the year, and that it absolutely blew my ever-loving mind, (laughs) which is kind of hard to do. It is. That's a big big sell. It's big, you guys. And... The other thing is, I almost put this down at the beginning because I was like, I don't understand what's happening in this book. (laughs) (laughs) And then now it has just become like shockingly one of my favorite books of the year. It is called The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. This is a horror novel. I picked it up kind of like you described earlier, Steph, in that I was in Book Soup, which is a bookstore here in LA and it was a staff pick mm-hmm. like sort of it, I guess it would have probably been in the horror section I don't remember but I don't remember why I was even drawn to it I had never heard of this author actually once I got it home I realized I didn't recognize some of his titles but at the time I bought it it was completely like I knew nothing again why did I buy I I think not to like get too like spiritual and magical about this because it's not always this way, but sometimes for reasons you absolutely cannot explain, it's almost like sometimes a book like falls off the shelf mm-hmm. and is like, read me. Yes. You know, they find you. Find they you. find you. At you, the moment you need them. You cannot yeah. describe why you bought it or why you read mm-hmm. it over something else or whatever. I don't know. This is a little bit how I feel about this book, which is funny because it's like horror. It's not like it's like mm-hmm. Dr. <laughs> Becky changing and my parenting. And then everybody gets murdered. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, it was magical. <laughs> I mean, look, I felt that way. <laughs> I felt that way a couple of years ago when I described the football book where I was like, don't know why I found this oh, one, but it right. meant it was for me. So this book is kind of hard to explain. And again, I almost put it down at the beginning. It, um, Stephen Graham Jones is an excellent, like phenomenal writer, but like it was almost so confusing at the beginning Maybe because I had read a lot of fluff or a lot of nonfiction, like sort of straightforward work before that. Like, so I wasn't in a creative mindset. I was also reading it on my Paperwhite because, side note, yes, I bought this at Book Soup and then I bought it on my Kindle when I wanted to read it. Anyway, so I ended up reading it on my Kindle, which in, if a book is confusing at any point and you're reading on an e-reader, it's very hard because oh, you can't like flip back. Right. Yes. And so I almost put this one down because I was like, I don't understand. This writing is confusing. It's like, I don't want to say like poetic isn't exactly the right word, but it's one of those things where like he sort of starts in the middle of the story and you can't really, you have to read quite a bit to kind of like figure out what's happening. And I was not figuring out what was happening. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so I was like going to put it down. And the only reason I stuck with it, this was several months ago, and I had a sick kid. So Lucy had a fever. My daughter had a fever and she really wanted me to like lay in bed with her. She wasn't feeling good, that kind of thing. I had my Kindle with me. And so I was like laying in bed with her for several hours. And that's just what I had up on my Kindle. Otherwise, I don't know that I would have finished this. And so again, it's one of those things that just sort of happened. Okay. So what the book is about is a group of teenagers they are indigenous people in Canada, but this is modern, you know, so they're like, you know, it's like a modern setting. They go hunting. I can't, you can't say too much about this book. There's like a lot of things <laughs> they, they go hunting. They have a sort of traumatic incident that happens when they're hunting as teenagers. And then now it's 10 years in the future and they are like late twenties, I guess something. And what happened on that hunting trip has sort of come back to haunt them all individually. Oh, this book is crazy. <laughs> what it's about, I, I really can't say much about it because of the nature of like the plot, but it's so fascinating because it's a horror book, but it is really sort of exploring like what happens when we kill animals Oh, what does this do to like our psyche? Mm. How does it haunt us? How does it change us in ways that we largely ignore, right? Because like who wants to think about the meat that they're eating or whatever? You don't. You just want to like eat your protein. But, you know, because with Native people, there's a lot of like spirituality to like their hunting and to animals in general and all this. So it's tied up in a lot of that. And I know that this is hard to explain and maybe I'm not like sort of selling it well again because I can't. It's horror. So expect that it's going to go super gnarly. How <laughs> on a degree of like Stephanie's chicken to Yvon- to Yasmin has a little bit of tolerance more than I to like Laura can contain anything. Like where, where on the you? scale is it? You couldn't read it. Steph. Okay, good to know. <laughs> There's a couple of very graphic scenes that were even a lot for me to take. Okay. Very graphic scenes. But this book is, while it is horror, it's also spiritual in the Mm -hmm. way that I'm like describing of like ancient, like ancient Mm -hmm. spirituality and also like animals and haunting. And I just, this, this book shocked the pants off me like I was like I've never read anything like this like when I was probably 75% of the way through I knew that I was reading maybe before that I was like this is such a special situation it does take you a good 25% I'm using percentages because I was reading it on my Kindle (laughs) (laughs) even once you start to figure out what's happening with the characters which is what was a bit confusing in the beginning but even once you start to understand that part you still are unsure like who the reliable narrator is here because things start to go, you know, because it's horror. So there's like fictional fantasy like things happening, like ghost like things happening. So you're like, I can't tell if this is actually happening or if this person is having right. a mental breakdown or mm-hmm. if, the, you know, this this is what's kind of what I love, but is a little bit confusing about the horror genre is that you can't really tell like what's real. Right. Yeah. right. And that's true throughout the book, actually. But like what's literal and like what's like not. And, but, but, so I'm like reading it and I'm like, this is blowing my mind. (laughs) (laughs) See, this is why we need video. I know. The facial expression. Nobody understands these amazing 
faces that Laura makes when she likes things. So the book, it ties up well. It has an amazing, shocking ending. There are some very graphic murder death sort of scenes so do not do not read this book this is not light horror this is graphic death horror it's made for sterner folks is what i'm hearing death horror but i think because it had this like spiritual element to it which by the way a lot of horror has a spiritual element to it sure that people do not you don't want to read horror because you don't want to be scared which i totally understand you don't want to read about graphic murder i totally understand but i think because so many people don't read horror that they just assume it's like like a horror movie or like a haunted house like but it's just like boo or it's like graphic for just not good reasons or whatever. When the best horror that I've read, including Stephen King, it always has a spiritual element to it. Right. I was going to say that, that this sounds very similar to the books that you love about Stephen, like with Stephen King's books. Right. And the thing is, I don't read a ton of horror. I have like a couple of horror Mm -hmm. horror writers that I like Mm -hmm. and sort of trust, but I don't read like a broad amount of horror. And this book maybe made me think maybe I should like, because Mm -hmm. I do love it so much. Sure. And I just was like, I can't even with this book. The ending is so hard and beautiful and scary. Now, I don't, most horror that I read, by the way, and that I even know about from like a plot point of view or whatever, good horror does not make you like not want to stay home alone and be scared. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not what it is. I get more scared from thrillers that I read. Like yeah. when I read The Nothing Man by Catherine Ryan yes. Howard. Yes, yes. That's about like a person who breaks into homes. Yes. That's not horror. That's a thriller book. That was very right. scary. Way scarier to mm-hmm. me than like ghosts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah. I do not think that a lot of, like I'm not very scared by Stephen King books that are horror horror. Like I don't, sure. I'm not worried that someone's going to harm me you know that they're not scary in the way that you think they're going to be scary no they're scary just about sort of like the depths of depravity or something like i think about like a book like misery like though it's scary as like how far people can go right but you're not scared that's going to happen to you Mm -hmm. you're just scared by the like potential of evil right Mm -hmm. because when you started explaining it i was like oh this sounds like it like you're like yeah actually happened when they were young and then it came back so it makes sense to me that you that this is that this resonated so strongly with you because that's it would It'll, genre you like. Yeah, it'll just stay with me so much. He wrote another book that I think was maybe got more attention, or at least I had heard of, and I had not heard of this one. The one I'm speaking about is called The Only Good Indians. The one that I feel like maybe more people would have heard of, or at least I had heard of, is called The Heart is a Chainsaw. Yes, I have that one. I bought it on Kindle right after I finished this because I was like, I have to read everything this man writes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best feeling. Yes. But then, you know, then I got competitive and wanted to, like, read a certain amount of books before the end of the year, blah, 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 which is, like, a weird part of Bookstagram that exists. Sure. <laughs> I will read more of him, like, at the beginning of 2023 when I'm feeling less competitive. But this book, The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which I'm now a little bit worried I didn't fully sell or explain because it is very hard to explain. Not just the spoiler part, but, like, conceptually, it's – I don't even – like – if we didn't have this microphone on, I don't even know that I could explain to you this. Right. <laughs> but I also think that, like, that's, I think, I, I feel like you did this last year with Razorblade Tears. 
Mm-hmm. Where you were like, it's terrible, but I loved it. And like, but it, <laughs> but it like made people want to read it. And yeah. actually, like, I have a couple of friends that listened to last year's podcast and they were like, oh my God, I totally understood what she was saying. Like, it's awful, but it's the best. And so I think like, I, I think it's important to be able to not say all the things, mm-hmm. but just say this resonated with me on such a deep level. And then let people experience it, which I think is the best part of and this whole truthfully, podcast. Some of the best books, you've got to go in blind. Yeah. Like for me, the one I always tell people is like, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro is one of my very favorite books of all time. And I always tell people, just promise me you'll buy it and then promise me you won't read the back flap. Yeah. Like you need to know nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You need to walk in blind and trust that it is a perfect book and just you're lucky you haven't read it yet because then you get to read it for the first time and it's a joy. (laughs) Go have fun and then cry. I also always say that about, which is a different genre from all of these that we're talking about, but we are all completely beside ourselves. Love that book. Yes. Another absolutely Karen Joy Fowler. Absolutely. Do not read the flat. Yeah. Go in blind. Go in blind. And just to mention Karen Joy Fowler, she also released a book this year that I loved. We're not going to talk about it today, but I'm just going to mention it. She wrote Booth, yeah. which is a historical fiction about John Wilkes Booth, which I did not think I was interested in at all. I only bought it because I like her as a writer. Anyway, that book was very good. The last thing that I want to say about The Only Good Indians is, so it's conceptually horror and spiritual and all these things I've already said. It is so well written. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I, that's the other knock on the horror genre is that it can be so creative, but it's maybe not like the best sentences. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This book completely delivers. It is right. like, you know, literature level horror. Mm-hmm. And like I, Stephen King. Because he's a sometimes, sometimes. Sometimes. He's a great, I mean, he's a great writer. He's pulpier in some ways than this is. Okay. I find, and I love him. He's my favorite. But, like, he's he's a little more like Everyday Joe can read mm-hmm. Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And this book is a little more high concept, I would say. Good to know. It's so good. <laughs> I love that. It's magical. There's death. I love it. <laughs> I know, right? No, it's really, like, but I guess this is what I was saying at the outset, that, like, it's sometimes things are surprising with you. That, like, because I think of you as such, like, a positive, like, bright, kind of, like, woo-woo person. And I know that you've gotten, like, more woo-woo since you moved to L.A. But, like, (laughs) you know, but, like, you are really, like, you're shiny and you're bright and, like, you have a lovely outlook. And even when you're sad, there's still, like, an element of positivity there, you know? And and I, I always have thought of you as someone who can find the brightness in the darkness and so it's always just so shocking to me when you're like, this book is so dark and I loved it. It spoke to my soul because it's just, it's so different from, I mean, like, like, like you have got like glitter nail polish on, you're all sparkly. And you are like, a shiny person. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just, it always shocks me. And I've known you a long time now and it still shocks me where I'm like, really? Like, this is the thing? But I think it's good because I, it, you always bring something to the table that I would never think of or you know and like you actually got me back into Stephen King when you did your whole like Stephen King summer readathon (laughs) so I think it's great but I I do I'm just pointing out that there's now a history of this book is so dark I love it 
Uh-huh. <laughs> it's true. There's one every year. It's always the one of your recommendations. I'm like, ooh, not for me. But last year she was like, this is not a fun book. Like, yeah, it's awful, was, but it's amazing. Yeah. In some ways, those books are hard to recommend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's honestly, it's the, the way this time I felt about I'm glad my mom died and also people love dead Jews, which is like, these were harrowing reads. Yeah. And in some ways, like, you're going to suffer through it a little bit. I think you should read them. But also, like, yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, last round. Round four. Can we do it? We can. I have faith in us. Steph, you're up. Okay. So my last book for my best of this year is called Sirens and Muses by Antonio Angres, which is just, ugh. I love this book so much. It is about four people set at a fictional art school in 2011, kind of at the, with Occupy Wall Street as the backdrop. And so it is about three students, one of whom Louisa is a scholarship student who is thoughtful and and really introspective and a little bit out of her depth, surrounded by like the very wealthy art school connected kids. And she finds herself really unexpectedly being incredibly attracted to this other student, Katrina, who is incredibly gifted and also unhappy and the daughter of two art collectors. Katrina is dating a guy named Preston, who is this kind of anti-capitalist provocateur who ends up pulling this kind of prank on their school that ends up kind of shifting all of their lives and kind of pulling everyone into the story. And the last of whom is this one professor who's a visiting professor named Robert, who used to be a famous artist who was famous for one particular very political piece of art. And a lot of the book is about, A, it's their four lives kind of intersecting. And a lot of it is about the meaning of art and how it relates to capitalism and creativity and authenticity. And it's all of these really heady ideas that feel kind of academic And at the same time, this book is so beautifully well-drawn, incredibly intimate. The relationship between the two women honestly feels a little bit like something Sally Rooney would have written. It's all set against this kind of political backdrop that ends up being really important to the story. And the funny thing is, is like, there's not even, like, there is plot, but like, it it's so much more, it's very much like a character piece. Mm -hmm. And it's about the way these four people who otherwise would not have been connected at all end up coming together and how art influences their lives and how they kind of find meaning in their lives. It's just, I cannot recommend this book more highly. I thought it was so incredibly beautiful. I think like seven people read it. Like it's (laughs) right. Like you need to say the title again. Cause I already forgot. I know. (laughs) So it's called Sirens and Muses by Antonio Angres. I swear I'm not the only one who read and liked this book. If you go on Goodreads, everyone raves. It's a great, it's such a beautiful novel. I mean, maybe it's because it's late and I've had a very long day, but that sounds awful to me. I know. Here's the thing. You want to not like it because of the subject matter. And it feels so pretentious. And it's just not. And I don't know why. It's so... I I don't know. It's so good. I loved... I mean, I fell for this book. I... 
I'm trying to think of an author who it feels like other than like honestly like Sally Rooney, except for normal people. I didn't like her latest one, admittedly. Yeah, and I, I can't. I, the thing is, is like I don't know how to sell this book better, but I want people to read it because it's so good. The romance is great. Like the relationship is really interesting. You will love Louisa. Katrina, who is a complete and total pain in the ass, you will learn to love her too. Yeah, I'm not like sold. it's it's <laughs> the thing is, is like this is totally a book I would have made you both read for book club, and I swear I would have won one of you over. Like I probably not both because I never win you both over with my picks. <laughs> But I swear, I would have won one of you over, and you would have been surprised. I trust your recommendation on this, because I feel like every year you do, you you bring good recommendations to this conversation. And yeah. I know if you chose it in your top four, like, I believe it about you. I, yeah, I really loved it. I, it's funny. I feel like there's always, like, one person in the comment who is like, oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> every year it's a different book, and there's always one person who's like, Stephanie, you're not wrong. Thank you. You know what book I bought that you talked about last year, but I bought it in paperback, and so, of course, I haven't read it. Sure. (laughs) If I bought it on my Kindle, I would have read it by now. But you talked about it last year, and as it has stared at me all year on my shelf, I remember what you said about it, and it was that book, Detransition Baby. Oh, it's so good. That book is excellent. It is really good. Okay, I am going to get to it, but I always remember. So you read it after I talked about it in book because you hadn't read it by then. I, I had it. But you hadn't but read I it, hadn't right? I hadn't read it. And so then I have, read it. Yeah. And you thought it was good? No, I thought it was excellent. But I was ready to I was ready to like that one. Yeah. I feel like every year you come with some random book that I, I like my oddball. I no, like they're good. Oddball it's books. great. And it's just like. <laughs> they're yeah. my special little perfect jewels. I love it. I will share them with the world. Yasmin. Last one. My last one. It's a nonfiction book called Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. And I was, I was I was really depressed after I read it because he goes, it's all about how like phones and screen time and all of this stuff has rewired and changed the way our brains work. And I read a lot of science articles about this. But as I mentioned, I have this quirky little child who is like born in like the Victorian ages. She hates phones. <laughs> she hates screens. She doesn't play video games. And she would get on like me and her father about like being on the phone or being distracted. And so this book came out and I was like, oh, you know, I really want to be better at this. And he goes into how he was upset that he couldn't think anymore. Mm. And I found this in work that I could not concentrate the same. I couldn't retain information. I couldn't read the same way. I couldn't research the same way. Honestly, I was like, do I have like early onset Alzheimer's? Like, what is wrong with me? And then I read this book and he was going through the same thing of realizing that he couldn't focus and he couldn't think. And so he went on this like technology fast where he went to a cabin and just like shut everything off and he was so anxious and it took him days to like get into the rhythm of life then he so he goes on he talks about his personal experience rediscovering his own focus but he also talks about things that we don't think about very often like my brother says this all the time that like this thing has been around this iphone has been around for what like 12 years and it's completely changed the way our brains work and that mm-hmm. is terrifying and there's so much that we rely on with technology that we're really not thinking about how it's changing our brains and just 
thinking about the fact that there, there's a guy. This is the guy who broke people. And I'm going to tell you why. The guy who created the endless scroll. So mm-hmm. A long time ago, you just had, you had to click at the bottom of web pages. And then once he created the endless scroll, it, the, it opened the door to the technology that we use on phones. Just scrolling, 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 reading, reading, reading. We didn't have an endless scroll. We wouldn't have Facebook. We wouldn't have Twitter. We wouldn't have all of these things that distract us. And it really, and he goes into a lot of the brain science and stuff that, that, I've, that I've already read, but to recognize in myself how quickly my brain has changed was really horrifying to me. And it's really like, here's the secret about me. One thing that I'm terrified of is like artificial intelligence and like robots like controlling us and it's happening. Like people are so controlled by their phones. And I discovered that I was too. And I'd always thought that I had a really good balance, but I, I, but I don't. And so what he suggests, like a couple ways to help this. And so the thing that I was doing is I would wake up and my alarm is on my phone. So I would grab the phone and then I would start reading the trades. I'd read the news. I'd read blah, 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 blah. So like the first two hours of my day were like wasted on the phone. I was reading less. I was not as present and just not doing the things I wanted to do. So he says like, you can invest in this thing called a K-safe, which was invented for like kitchen snacks where you put the kitchen snacks in and you put the timer on and you cannot open the thing. You can't open the box. So that's where I put my phone now. And I did like an overhaul of everything. I started getting the print newspaper because I realized like, I don't need to know what's happening every single second, right? Like I can find out if the world is going to end, like I'm going to find out. Someone will tell me. I don't need to have it pop up on my phone. So I got the print newspaper again. And I got an alarm clock. I stopped using my phone. I put my phone in the box and I lock it for 12 hours. Because guess what? If there's an emergency, someone could call my husband. Like things, it's, everything's going to be fun. <laughs> and it changed my life completely. Like I was telling you guys earlier about how I got off all social media and that I'm really, really keeping my screen time to like three hours because it was at like, 12 to 18. Like, I'm not even kidding. You know, and I'll listen to podcasts. I'll listen to things in the car or whatever, but I'm not endlessly scrolling on Twitter or endlessly scrolling on Instagram or, you know, just being like, oh, I wonder what people on Reddit think about this, which like I used to think was, oh, that was helpful. Like I have lupus. So I'm going to join a lupus group on Reddit. No, that's terrible. I don't need to know what every single person thinks all the time. And I realized that that's what was taking over my brain was just everyone's opinion. And like, all you know, we have access to what everybody thinks all the time and we don't need it, but it, it has so quickly transformed the way we consume information, the way we focus, the way we talk, the way our brains work. You know, and so it was in in some ways it was kind of depressing because I was like, wow, Zuckerberg broke people like he broke the way that we function because we are now so online that we don't have relationships in the present. And I have to say, like, it's because my daughter is so like old fashioned. It's been really good for me to be off the phone, be in the present. I'm the exact opposite of you guys. I got rid of my Kindle and I buy books and books and books. 
And I only try to look at paper after a certain hour and every day. And it's made me much less anxious. Mm-hmm. I'm so much calmer. I feel like I can reason through complex things in a way that I haven't been able to the past couple of years. And it's just changed the way my approach to work is it changed. It's just changed everything because I don't have this phone in front of my face most of the day. So anyway, stolen focus, Johan Hari. I think it's really, if you are finding that you cannot concentrate the way that you used to, I would pick this up and, and really give it a read because he goes through all his experiences Well, this appeals to me because I also have a screen addiction. I mean, I think we all do to some degree. Mm -hmm. And I have made some changes in the last few months, like some small changes. But I have been feeling lately like I needed even bigger, like you're describing. Mm -hmm. Like not just these tiny tweaks, which do matter, but like it opened up enough space to be like, oh, yeah, I need even more. Mm -hmm. And... I've been resisting this, actively resisting this word of the year because, you know, I don't always like words of the year and sometimes they annoy me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the word of the year that has been coming to me over and over for weeks now is focus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did not know that that was going to be the title of the book. I didn't, I haven't heard of this book until tonight. But, you know, I've relaunched the show. I'm still doing some book stuff. Like I'm working a lot right now and I'm finding what you're saying is that I do not have the capacity to like think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I will be like in a meeting and someone will ask me kind of a complex question and I'll be like, uh, and you know, I've, I've thought like, is it aging? I mean, maybe part of it is, is it hormonal? I literally went to the eye doctor because I felt like I was having some blurred vision and he tested my eyes and he was like, your eyes are fine. Yeah. Yeah, you are you are having dry eyes yeah. because you're on screens. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Like, you know, so these little things are like not just red flags, like blazing, crazy flags. Oh, yeah. It's a big, big deal. Cheryl Turkle, she wrote a book called Alone Together, which is horrifying about how young people are together, but mm-hmm. they're all on phones. And then another book called Reclaiming the Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. And those two books are really have, were the start of this journey for me. But I have to say, Stolen Focus really changed how I, I operate. And I feel better. I feel like myself. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's a, quite an endorsement. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we are going to end on that note. Did I talk about my final book? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I... I'm able because it's my show. I am going to release my full list separately. We've already been going for numerous hours. <laughs> and I also have the chance to talk about books all the time. So we're going to end on that stolen focus note. And everyone's going to go put down their phones. <laughs> <laughs> go put down your phones. Be present in your life after you listen to this episode. I do love every year chatting with both of you so much. It is like the highlight of making this show, which when I wanted to relaunch the podcast, I should have like a normal person waited until after the first of the year and relaunched it in January. But I so wanted to do these end of the year episodes, especially this one. It really matters to me. I think that people love listening to it and it just is like the perfect way to cap off 
the end of the calendar year. So thank you both for generously coming and having this extra super long conversation (laughs) publicly, which I know is its own level of vulnerability for people who don't normally talk publicly. So I just appreciate you being here. This Thank was you for having us. Yeah, this was so fun. It's a highlight of my December every no, year. No, it's it really is my favorite yeah. thing, and I just I think it's so. It's also just so fun to have like this record of of our friendship. And, yes, and not just like our reading relationships, but also just our friendship of the past five years. And I I want to keep going because how how lucky are we that we can be like oh remember when we didn't know mm-hmm. each other remember yeah. when this was happening remember when Yasmin cried at book club at Stephanie's house like you <laughs> <laughs> you know like just to see how our kids have grown and Steph got married and and we can just reflect back on it through the through these talks and it's just it's really really special it is it is and I like talking to the people. <laughs> It's the power of of books because we have like deep friendships now, but it began with book talk. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I love that. It brings us together. Yay. All right. Love y'all. Love you. Bye. You've just listened to an episode of the 10 Things to Tell You podcast. For show notes and links, go to 10thingstotellyou.com. Make sure you're following us on Facebook and Instagram at 10 Things to Tell You. And you can also join our free connection group on Facebook to discuss episodes and topics. For bonus content, ad-free episodes, and monthly Zoom gatherings with me, join my Secret Stuff Patreon community by going to 10thingstotellyou.com slash secret stuff. Thanks for listening. <laughs>